0: From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 37, Shin Godzilla. Fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm Brian Scherschel. And this is going to be a big episode. We have been looking forward to this for a long, long time. Our Godzilla journey is coming close to an end. One of our missions as
1: a podcast is to do things that no one has done before, and we have a treat for you. It's like this movie was made specifically for this podcast. This movie is a a once-in-a-generation experience. So special. And if you thought our Return of Godzilla episode was good, you'll love this.
0: Yes. Most podcasts, when they cover Shin Godzilla, they make really long episodes that are quite involved, and we're planning on doing the same thing.
1: We are going to give you a really good show today. Our related topics for this episode are the Great East Japan Earthquake and Tsunami and the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear meltdowns. This episode will have a different layout than usual because there's so much to discuss. We will do our usual film description, our original, signature audience-focused method to give the listeners the facts about Shin Godzilla. In part two, we'll give you the big picture of what we think of Shin Godzilla, because this movie and the related topic are inseparable Part three will be a blend of our usual part two film discussion of Shin Godzilla and our usual part three related topics discussion where we will chronologically address specific moments in the movie and we will add parallels to 311 as we go. 311 being the triple disaster uh, so-called with the earthquake tsunami and the meltdowns and the word 311 is signified because it was March 11th 2011. We hope you enjoyed this experience.
0: Okay, Brian, we have a lot to do, so let's get to that film description. Take it away. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
1: Godzilla is a godlike force of nature. Coming ashore with no apparent motivation, he metamorphoses through several forms via hyper-evolution. He's indifferent towards humans unless they inflict significant damage on him, at which point he becomes destructive. Rando Yaguchi, the willful and astute deputy chief cabinet secretary, constantly clashes with the bureaucracy within the Japanese government while trying to resolve the Godzilla crisis. The prime minister's aide, the acquiescent but savvy Hideki Akasaka, complies with the older politician's decisions to climb the political ladder. The ambitious and informal Kyoko Ann Patterson is the special envoy for the President of the United States who provides vital information on Godzilla so she can further her political career. Hiromi Ogashira, a brilliant and unemotional Ministry of the Environment bureaucrat, offers several hypotheses on Godzilla and joins Iguchi's team of misfits to formulate an anti-Godzilla plan. C.J. Okouchi is the indecisive Prime Minister struggling to adapt to the ever-evolving disaster. The human and kaiju plot lines are unified. With rare exception, the characters' jobs and actions revolve around debating what to do about Godzilla and/or formulating strategies against him. Godzilla is a constantly changing problem in this film. JSDF helicopters prepare to attack Godzilla, but they are ordered to stand down when civilians are spotted, and Godzilla returns to the ocean. Later, the JSDF assaults Godzilla with helicopters, tanks, fighter jets, and howitzers but their payloads bounce off Godzilla's skin, and he destroys several tanks. American B-2 bombers drop massive ordnance penetrator, or mop bombs, on Godzilla, which do injure him, but he recovers quickly and destroys them with lasers from his mouth and dorsal plates. The problem is neutralized thanks to Operation Yashiori. First, they use unmanned trains, American drones, and missiles from U.S. naval ships to deplete Godzilla's atomic energy and topple him. They then use compression pumps to empty a blood coagulant into his mouth that freezes him into a statue. The script, by co-director Hideki Ono, is a complex but focused story. There are many supporting characters and several subplots, but they all come together by the end. The film had a budget of 1.6 billion yen, or about 15 million dollars. The special effects were supervised by co-director Shinji Higuchi, who'd worked on several Godzilla films. While he originally intended to use a combination of CGI and traditional tokusatsu techniques, such as puppets and animatronics, the latter was later deemed unusable. So for the first time in a Japanese film, Godzilla was created entirely with CGI. Kyojin theater actor Mansai Nomura played Godzilla using motion capture, integrating traditional Japanese dance into his performance. The CGI creates one of the scariest incarnations of Godzilla. This is a dark film filled with gravitas, but is also a satire of the bloated bureaucracy within the Japanese government and the U.S.-Japan alliance. Like the 1954 and 84 film, this presents extraordinary events in a realistic setting. Ono and Higuchi created the boldest Godzilla film in years. Never before had Godzilla metamorphosed through several forms or had such a bizarre assortment of powers— for the first time, a Japanese Godzilla film was a complete reboot with no connections to previous movies. It was also the first Godzilla film where most of the protagonists were politicians. While the film has a distinctive anime flair with its cinematography, it reinforces the style of the original Godzilla with its tones, themes, and inspiration from recent events, among other things. After the success of Legendary Pictures' 2014 reboot, Toho decided that timing was right for a new domestic version. The film helped the Japanese audience cope with the ongoing issues stemming from the 311 disasters. It expressed Japan's resurgent patriotism and, to a lesser extent, a new nationalism. The film's audience was Godzilla and Kaiju fans, anime fans, and Japanese moviegoers. The film became one of the most popular and best-reviewed entries in the Godzilla franchise. When released July 29, 2016, it sold 5.69 million tickets and grossed 8.25 billion yen, or around $80 million, making it the second-highest-grossing film in Japan that year. It received a limited theatrical run in the U.S. and Canada October 11, 2016, thanks to Funimation Films, grossing $1.9 million and breaking into the top 10 in its first two days. It won seven Japan Academy Prizes, including Picture of the Year. It is loved by the majority of the fan base. Unlike the 1954 and 84 movies, there was no heavily edited international version like Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956, and no Americanized version like Godzilla 1985. There are many forces at play. Yaguchi bypasses bureaucratic red tape by forming a group of outcasts to study Godzilla. The U.S. makes unilateral decisions to kill Godzilla, much to the Japanese leader's chagrin. Tensions are high when they decide to use nuclear bombs, giving the Japanese barely enough time to evacuate Tokyo. This prompts Yaguchi's group to seek a non-nuclear answer. The U.S. wants a quick resolution in order to bury their knowledge of Godzilla and avoid culpability. Prime Minister Okuchi is overwhelmed by the pressure from his cabinet and the military to act as the emergency escalates. Ms. Patterson sees this crisis as a step toward eventually becoming President of the United States. Chief among the film's many themes is the Japanese standing up to the U.S. and finding their own solution for defeating Godzilla, although they enact the alliance to receive help from them. Teamwork and determination are illustrated by Yaguchi's group. Bureaucracy is shown to be an impediment during a crisis. Prime Minister Okuchi becomes more decisive as time goes on. Miss Patterson grows to appreciate Japan, the country of her grandmother. Yaguchi warns his colleagues to beware of unfounded optimism. After Godzilla's defeat, he says he will rebuild the Japanese government in a proper way and that the world must learn to coexist with Godzilla. Young rebels are heroes because they went in bold, new directions. This concludes Part 1 of the podcast.
0: You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In Part 2 of this episode, we will give you the big picture of what we think of this movie. We'll begin our big picture talk by talking
1: about how we got introduced to this movie.
0: I love this movie. It was a movie I liked the first time I saw it, and I like it more every time I see it, so it is quickly becoming one of my favorites in the franchise.
1: We first started planning this podcast before Shin Godzilla came out, and before we even knew what the movie would be about. We had already decided that the podcast would be about Japanese history and culture, and that the international affairs-related topics were going to be a big part of what makes Kaiju Vision Radio different. So when we saw that Shin Godzilla would be a modernized remake of the 1954 original and the 1984 movie, The Return of Godzilla, we couldn't believe how lucky we were. Right as we were planning a podcast with heavy emphasis on international affairs, the movie landed right into our local movie theater. I was so excited, and it totally fits into our mission and the G Fan mission of greater international understanding.
0: Yeah, we were planning this podcast while the film was still in production. We were following the production news and it was it was very interesting. It's not often I get to follow the production of a Japanese Godzilla movie this closely. Yeah, we were just lucky. It was like this movie was made for us. <laughs> This is a movie that, like I said,
1: it's a a a once-in-a-generation experience for Godzilla fans, because this kind of Godzilla movie doesn't happen very often. It's a movie from the Godzilla series that I can show friends and say, look at how different this is, and look at how smart this is. And most everybody that I've shown it to agrees that it's a pretty amazing experience. This movie's rare nowadays, because, well, it's smart, there are a lot of smart movies out, but this is particularly smart. But many Americans are missing the point about this movie. The fact that there's a few different layers to this movie doesn't really make it as all that easy, either. But you have to put yourself into their position, because this was made for Japan, by Japan. And yet, I feel like this is one of the few movies that was ever made specifically for me. Because I can relate to it, so much. And as soon as I saw the government-related trailer... I knew they were going to do a remake of 54, but especially 84. And so I became so incredibly excited, like, yes, government. <laughs> but not everybody's going to do that. Not, that's not going to be everybody's reaction. We saw this in uh, our theater, local theater here in Fort Wayne, because mm-hmm. that was a wonderful thing to have. Actually I was able to so see that.
0: happy. And in Japanese our, even. Yeah, I was so happy that our local theater was one of the ones that, the handful of theaters that picked up the, the movie because it was only getting a limited release for about a week. And I thought we were going to have to drive a couple of hours to a bigger city to see it. But it was right here. We also saw it at G-Fest. Yes. That was a different experience because when I saw it here in Fort Wayne, it was, I was seeing it with what I assumed was more of a general audience. But at G-Fest, we were seeing it with fans. So it was quite different. The audiences are really different because mm-hmm. G-Fest is so specific. Mm-hmm. And they re- they reacted to things quite differently. And for a lot of people in that audience, that was actually the first time that they were able to see it because um, they were coming from parts of the country where no theater near them was playing the movie.
1: This may be the first time that anyone with an international affairs background has analyzed this movie on a podcast. I think you're right on that. When I was in graduate school, my seminar class was on Hurricane Katrina.
0: hmm You've mentioned that a few times before. Yeah.
1: I learned how to examine the complex reasons for why the levees collapsed and what happened afterwards and who was to blame. And this education helped me to understand 311 when we started studying all of that. And I already learned quite a bit actually when it happened, because I follow the news a lot, but this is going to be interesting.
0: I, I have to say, your your background in this has helped to educate me on the subject, and I really don't think I would have understood or appreciated Shin Godzilla the first time I saw it without the things that you had been showing me. And we had seen the real Godzilla
1: 1984, not mm-hmm. the 1985, but we saw the real McCoy plenty of times. Mm-hmm. And wow, I saw that in this movie so much.
0: <laughs> As did I. <laughs>
1: I've also studied NATO and the European Union, along with plenty of other topics on international affairs. And so learning about how bureaucracies are different between one country to the other, et cetera. All through the course of this podcast, I've been approaching these movies as kind of a movie lover, cinephile, and as comparative politics and international analyst. I'm familiar with Japan and its culture, but I've never been there. Mm-hmm. And though I, maybe I'll visit at some point. But I also don't know the language, and it's kind of hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I i don't wish I was Japanese.
0: <laughs> no, I love Japan, but I'm very happy being an American.
1: Yeah, I'm okay
0: here. I don't want to really live
1: there on a long-term basis either. I just, I'm an American. I feel at home here. And I'm not so much of a Japanophile just as much as I am someone who's immersed in all these comparative and international topics And Japan's one of the many countries that I'm actually interested in. Mm -hmm. But for Godzilla, obviously, there's only one country you're going to think of.
0: Mm -hmm. For me, I've just been so inundated with a lot of Japanese pop culture through video games and anime, movies like this, that I appreciate them on that angle. But thanks to you and learning about all of these other things about their history and culture, it's deepened my appreciation for them even more.
1: And we're both Americans, we're going to be coming at this from an American point of view, and that's what makes this interesting with a movie like this. Yes. Remember in episode 3, which that's for the original Godzilla movie from 1954, we went over the meanings of Shin, because it pertained to the occupation. People wanted a new Japan, a new this, a new that, after the war had ended. One of the meanings of Shin is new which that was when they were saying Shin for that. They were mainly meaning new.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It can be translated several different ways, but uh, yeah, which in is in general cle- though there are a lot of different definitions. Yeah, yeah, which is I think one of the one of the bits of cleverness about the title because even the title is a little bit ambiguous and open to interpretation.
1: Yeah, so some of the meanings are true, real, original, god, yeah, sacred, holy, saint, and also evil. Oh, really? Hmm, interesting.
0: I've also heard, though not quite as often, that it could also mean evolution. There's some merit to those uh, those various meanings within this film, but I do think, as you were saying, Brian, that the one that makes the most sense is new.
1: It's possibly true, but new sounds probably the, probably the best for me. But maybe all the meanings apply, we don't know.
0: <laughs> like I said, it's one of the things that makes this movie interesting, and quite possibly genius.
1: 311 was a very, very significant event for Japan, obviously. We have to address that before we can move on.
0: You can't separate this movie from 311. And this is much more of a disaster film,
1: in a way, than a lot of other Godzilla movies, because it's centered around a disaster. Mm -hmm. The domestic audience for this movie was terribly affected by 311, and big reactions come out of huge disasters in Japan, disasters like this they affect a country's psyche
0: this more than any other recent event in japanese history changed everything for that country these disasters were unprecedented in their scope destruction and consequences even for a disaster prone nation like japan there was nothing like it this was one of the absolute biggest disasters
1: in world history it's the fourth worst earthquake ever recorded on Earth, and it's the worst earthquake to hit Japan, which that is really saying something. Yeah. Severe damage to buildings, massive tsunami, damage to two nuclear plants, though Fukushima Daini ended up being okay. There was a dam failure, flood water, fires. There was a refinery fire on the shore of Tokyo Bay that lasted 10 or 11 days. Which reminded me of Godzilla vs. Gigan, the scene in that, with mm-hmm. all the burning. It was pretty much like that. Whole towns destroyed. 300 hospitals destroyed. Elderly and infirm evacuated from hospitals dying during the evacuation. 45,700 buildings destroyed. 144,300 buildings damaged. 15,895 people dead. 2,539 missing, and 3,647 dead in the aftermath. Many shrines and other cultural sites were damaged or destroyed. It will take approximately 23 years to process all the rubble. Refugees from the area streamed south. There were shortages of gasoline, water, and food in parts of the country. Survivors faced social stigmas, exclusion, depression, and alcoholism. A 46-foot tsunami hit the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, going over the 19-foot seawall easily. This resulted in hydrogen air explosions, release of radioactive material, and level 7 meltdowns in three of the six reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. The plant is only 142 miles northeast of the Tokyo metropolis, but only 40 miles outside Greater Tokyo. The earthquake caused damage to electricity infrastructure. There were power shortages. Rolling blackouts lasted 29 days. People stuck in elevators for days. Flights into Tokyo were canceled. 10,000 people were stranded at Haneda Airport. 13,000 were stranded at Narita Airport. The Sendai Airport got hit by the tsunami. We're talking the scenes not unlike the Tokyo earthquake and the Submersion of Japan level bad.
0: Yeah, I just saw that movie. I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Wind was blowing generally west to northwest, so the radioactive cloud from the nuclear plant went over that part of northern Japan. Corporate headquarters considered moving out of Tokyo because of the meltdowns. If the whole place had blown up, and without the Fukushima 50 and the plant manager, it would have been much worse, and Tokyo would have had to be evacuated. The point is, with a few international exceptions, unless you were in Japan during all of this, you didn't experience it, they did. They, as a country, went through incredible trauma, and we are outside looking in. This movie is about Japan. It's made for Japanese people, and the assistant director, Shinji Higuchi, told us that.
0: Mm-hmm. He introduced the movie before the screening at G-Fest last year, and he made that plain. This was made for Japanese people.
1: And this, like the other Godzilla movies from Japan, are foreign films, after all. One of the results of this national trauma is patriotism. This movie is also a movie to help people cope with this trauma, just as the first Godzilla movie was working through the trauma that we talked about in our episode about the end of World War II and the occupation. As well as the atomic bombs and fire bombings from the war, Godzilla here additionally represents 311 in all of his
0: different forms. The imagery... Godzilla's evolutions, the government's response to this crisis, it it all parallels this great disaster.
1: But speaking of patriotism, we're going to go through a few definitions, and those are militarism, patriotism, and nationalism. And we're going to define these words. First, militarism. It seems that the definition of militarism is a little fuzzy. Some seem to think it means (laughs) (laughs) military-ish. So let's actually define militarism. The belief or the desire of a government or a people that a state should maintain a strong military capability to use it aggressively to expand or to promote national interests and or values. It also may imply the glorification of the military and of the ideals of a professional military class and the predominance of the armed forces in the administration or policy of the state." So that means the military has a huge role in the function of everyday life in the government. Mm -hmm. The key words here are to use it aggressively and glorification of the military. Those are our two key takeaways here. The military is the example for how all of society should run. That's militarism. An example of a militarist state would be North Korea. Yes. Is there militarism in this movie? I would argue no. No. They're saying that they have faith in the JSDF as the last line of defense in a crisis.
0: The last fortress, our hero Yaguchi calls them.
1: And well, isn't that a foregone conclusion? This is a crisis. And in the midst of such crisis, that's who you go to when you need help. Look at how long it took for the leadership to go to the military option in this movie in the first place. They hesitate. They hesitate. They look at the Constitution if it's possible to do it. And they know that the JSDF has to be used before they can come to the U.S. for help. The military is definitely not the first option that comes to mind. No. The JSDF is generally not the preferred route of employment in Japan. There's a labor shortage, for one. Uh, A lot of them, they come from rural areas or small towns or smaller cities. They aren't paid all that well. And it's an all-volunteer force. And the three branches, the JASDF, the JGSDF, and the JMSDF, are sectioned off, and they at this point they can't even coordinate communication as one unit. There's not much glorification of the JSDF in this movie, but they do think of the JSDF in a lot of the same ways we think of our military. When called upon in a crisis, the military is supposed to save lives and protect the country. The nation honors their service and their bravery, but so do we. Since the SDF isn't a profession that everybody chooses, volunteering and sacrificing your own life for others is something to be thanked for. Here are some polling figures. All of the polls that we're going to be mentioning in this episode are current figures from the Pew Research Center Global Attitudes and Trends section. 79% of Japanese people in a recent poll said that military rule of Japan would be bad. They selected representative democracy as the best realistic option for how to run society. Democracy isn't perfect. It's the best alternative to what's out there, though. The vast majority of Japanese are not warmongers, though there is considerable concern in Japan about the military buildup in China. Here's our next definition. Patriotism.
0: Patriotism is the ideology of attachment to a homeland. This attachment can be a combination of many different features related to one's own homeland, including ethnic, cultural, political, or historical aspects. Faith in one's homeland could also be accurate. But here's George
1: Orwell's definition of patriotism. Devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life, which one believes to be the best in the world, but has no wish to force it upon other people. Patriotism is of its nature defensive, both militarily and culturally. That's Orwell's take. Now here's the big definition. Nationalism.
0: Promoting the interests of a particular nation and promoting national identity, culture, language, race, religion, political goals, or common ancestry, preservation of culture, self-determination, and full sovereignty. However, here's Orwell's definition of nationalism. Nationalism, on the other hand, is inseparable from the desire for power. The abiding purpose of every nationalist is to secure more power and more prestige, not for himself, but for the nation or other unit in which he has chosen to sink his own individuality. He also described nationalism as, quote, power hunger by self-deception, end quote. He refers to the nationalist as, quote, one who thinks solely or mainly in terms of competitive prestige. Having picked his side, he persuades himself that it is the strongest and is able to stick to his belief even when the facts are overwhelmingly against him. That's what Orwell says. So patriotism is defensive inwards, and
1: fulfilled. Nationalism is offensive, outwards, and power-hungry. Between nationalism and patriotism, which one's operating in this movie?
0: Patriotism. Seems pretty obvious to me.
1: Patriotism is pride in one's country, but it's nothing to get worried about necessarily. We have no right to tell the Japanese that they shouldn't be patriotic about their country, after all. One critic of this film refers to this movie as promoting soft nationalism. Well, isn't that what patriotism is?
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: Both patriotism and nationalism have the element of independence and self-determination. This movie is displaying patriotic desire for self-determination inwards, because there is nothing in this movie about how the rest of the world needs to be more Japanese. They are satirizing their own leaders and authority figures. There are plenty of movies made in the U.S. that are either patriotic or even nationalistic, but when, it, when you're the domestic audience, though, you really don't think of it as much.
0: No, you don't.
1: <laughs> and we're thinking, of course, that we're number one. But many other nations think they're number one, too, or they want to be number one. Mm-hmm. And Japan's no exception.
0: The 2014 Godzilla made in the U.S. expresses patriotism as well. Ford and the United States Armed Forces are serving in order to protect the homeland and its citizens. This movie isn't nationalistic. There's not much cooperation with other countries here. The U.S. solves things themselves, with the help of Ken Watanabe.
1: Shin Godzilla would be militaristic if the SDF could deploy itself, and citizens wouldn't be in charge of the military then either, or also if the SDF was used as the first option instead of as a last resort. When Japan tries to take down Godzilla with only the military option, the military option fails. That's very important, Instead, it takes courage, ability to speak the truth, formulation of a clear strategy, cooperation with allies, cooperation with the United States, scientific research, all of these things were necessary in order to defeat Godzilla in this movie. In the original Godzilla movie from 1954, the military appears to be unrestricted. They are instantly deployed, and random citizens cheer them. Instead, this movie realistically shows how many restrictions and controls are actually going on with the JSDF. The military recruitment poster has been a source of some difficulties about this movie as well, and it's partially a misunderstanding of the way Japan works and the way Japanese marketing works. The JSDF has its own anime mascots for the three branches as well. Anime is used quite a bit in recruitment posters, The poster was used as a way to thank the JSDF for being so involved with the creation of this movie, which they were. The info on the bottom is contact information for the JSDF on the left. And then on the right is a a message that reads, looking for people who can defeat Godzilla. That likely doesn't mean we want people who would fight Godzilla in a literal sense.
0: (laughs) I don't think anyone would want to.
1: And they know that they're not joining up for that, right? I mean, obviously,
0: Godzilla's not real. <laughs> no.
1: And it's more of a thing that it's more like we want people who are capable of winning against Godzilla.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not literally, though. There's also a message along the left side of the poster that says, Defend Future Now. But the US has plenty of advertisements on TV for the armed forces that we could talk about for a long time and do all these comparative politics things with, right?
0: yeah and something I was gonna I was gonna mention that you you those recruitment commercials all look super slick and they have high production values they're trying to make all of this look cool almost like you you join the military it's almost like becoming a superhero you know some of these or you're you know, in a video game yeah or you're in a video game you know or something like that they're trying to make it look appealing and i mean the they used to have gi joe it was kind of like this mascot for the army back in world war ii and that eventually became an action figure line and all this kind of cool stuff so it's not unheard of
1: yeah it's kind of how military recruitment works in the first place whether we like it or not and compared to military recruitment works in other countries including the united states this isn't all that much of an anomaly especially since the JSDF was so heavily involved with the film itself Moving on from the definitions that we gave you about militarism, patriotism, and nationalism, we want to move on to how this movie is not different than most other Godzilla movies. So we're just going to go reason by reason here and follow it that way. This movie reflects Japan at this moment in time, effectively expressing the current state of the Japanese national spirit. The biggest examples of this phenomenon would be the original... 1954, The Return of Godzilla from 1984, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah from 1991, Godzilla Mothra and King Ghidorah Giant Monsters All Out Attack from 2001, and obviously this. There are many more though as we have made many connections in previous episodes on a weekly basis. These issues include the security treaty, invasions, trade and globalization, nuclear bomb testing, pollution, weather control, a critique of modern industrial society, <laughs> multinational corporations, national energy policy, mm-hmm. environmentalism and foreign policy. These movies
0: have always sought inspiration from Japan's history and current headlines. This is no different, and they would often these films were often made to meditate on those things. They were cathartic experiences for the audiences. It would often help them to deal with tough issues, to deal with national trauma. During this time,
1: between 1984 and 2016, a great deal has happened in Japan besides the 311 disaster. Examples include the rise of China and its new status as virtually a colonial power. The end of the Cold War and the restart of the new Cold War. North Korea going nuclear, and the lost decade. A huge one would be how Japan made a turn more towards the political right between then and now. Japan is a pretty conservative society, but at the same time, that does not make the Japanese default right-wing or anything, which is quite different. But there are many Japanese who are also apolitical or don't vote. Their voting culture is pretty different from ours. But these are the events that occurred, and this is where Japan is now. Shin Godzilla, like many of the Godzilla movies, keeps Godzilla relevant. Relevancy is one of the biggest goals when creating a Godzilla movie. And the point is, things change. And people change, circumstances change, and countries change. As all of these things change, Godzilla has changed right along with everything else. Godzilla has fought to stay relevant all through the many decades it's been since the end of the war. If Godzilla doesn't change as the times change, it doesn't survive, or at least it's a lot less chance of survival. Shin Godzilla represents Japan at this moment in time so well that it's remarkable. Shin Godzilla is similar to the 1954 and 1984 films in that Japan goes its own way to solve their problems. In the 1954 film, Japan goes its own way completely alone.
0: In the return of Godzilla, Prime Minister Mitamura refused to allow both the U.S. and Soviet Union to use nuclear weapons on Japanese soil against Godzilla. He did so on the grounds that it would violate Japan's three nuclear principles. Instead, Japan opted to use their own secretly developed weapons, i.e. the Super X, to defeat Godzilla. He's no different than the prime ministers in this film seeking an alternative to nukes. In Shin Godzilla...
1: Japan agrees to a UN-US plan to take out Godzilla with a nuclear bomb in Tokyo. But Japan goes its own way by teaming up with other countries, including the US, to take care of Godzilla before the deadline that the international community put upon them. It's their country, they take initiative, and they save themselves with other countries helping them. If Japan going its own way is nationalistic, then the two previous ones are probably even more nationalistic than this is. In this movie, more than any others in the whole series, is clear that Japan
0: cannot succeed without the help of others. And just like any other Godzilla movie, the military is ineffectual against the kaiju. This has been true since 1954. Even when the military did solve the kaiju problem, it was always with outside help from the environment, scientists, or other kaiju, among other things. In some cases, like Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, their victory is relatively short-lived. In this film, there's a sense that Godzilla will thaw and threaten Japan again. In fact, the only Godzilla film where a military-only solution succeeds is, ironically, Godzilla 1998. And that was a poorly made American film. Even though the JSDF is the
1: most realistic by far that it's ever been in any of these movies, they're still weak. Maybe it's a thing where... Where you see it and it's real, that that makes more of an impact, like it's actually going to do something, but they end up actually not succeeding at all, as real this time, as realistic this movie is. Yeah. It's very often plan B that ends up working, whatever plan B is. In part one of these films, we go through the various ways used to try to solve the problem that's presented. The solution that works is usually some sort of nuanced approach. Volcanoes, ice... All kinds of technology and vehicles, blood coagulants, anti-nuclear energy bacteria, freezing rays, giant robots, missiles with giant corkscrews on the end of them. This movie is no different in that respect. In the 1998 movie, they shot at the problem until it killed Godzilla in name only. There are also, by our count, only four movies in the entire Godzilla series that don't have the JSDF or the military in them. One criticism is that this movie's message is give us our military back already, but the military doesn't succeed It's part of a much larger picture. We absolutely don't want to say or venture a guess even at what Ishiro Honda would have thought of this movie.
0: There's we, no way for we're us never, to know.
1: We're never going to know, but we will try to see if there, if we can recognize the brotherhood of man principle in this movie, because I can. The, so can I. The original film's Brotherhood of Man connection is obvious. Japan denounces nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons testing, and embraces peace with mankind, even though they solve the problem entirely on their own. In this, Operation Yashiori ends up working, and that involves cooperation, with the U.S. for military power, with France for stalling the Security Council, Germany for their technological power, and other countries for equipment, etc., Compared to The Return of Godzilla, Shin Godzilla actually depicts more international cooperation than that does. At the end of the day, Operation Yashiori results in a peaceful solution, just as in the 1954 and 1984 movies. And you already hinted at the whole thing about working through trauma with Mm -hmm. these movies. The 1954 film is the ultimate example. It's about the war, the occupation, the atomic bombs, and the Castle Bravo test.
0: Mm -hmm. The end of censorship as well?
1: And in this one, it's about 311. But both of those movies, they're about coping with Mm -hmm. what they've been through. Just like in the 1954 film, this movie is channeling the public's outrage. Big time. In the original Godzilla, the people are expressing outrage at the Bikini Atoll test, the atomic bombings from the U.S., and all the other forces they believe made them suffer. Shin Godzilla is channeling outrage that the Japanese felt towards their authorities because every level failed at properly reacting to the 311 disasters. The system didn't work, and they're unhappy with its performance. The old guard is criticized as part of the ineptitude of the government as well. It is progressive young people with complex solutions that fix the problem, Mm -hmm. not the old guard. There aren't very many entities that escape criticism in Shin Godzilla. No, especially in Japan. This is also similar to the first movie in that this movie makes Japan appear as a victim. In this one, Japan is a victim of the secret American research project that turns into Godzilla. This mirrors how the Japanese were victims of 3-11 as well. In the original movie, the Japanese are depicted as victims of the atomic bombings by the United States. And Godzilla is a metaphor for those events. Between the original movie and Shin Godzilla, which movie is harder on the United States? I'd say at the very least both.
0: Yeah, it's just that it's more implicit in the original film because the U.S. is never mentioned by name. The, to- the, the bombings and the tests are mentioned, but it's assumed that everyone knows that those were all conducted by Americans. In this one, the United States is mentioned by name.
1: But this is a satire, at least.
0: Yes. That is the biggest difference.
1: We're not going to say that there isn't a nationalist inter- way to interpret this movie.
0: You certainly can do that.
1: But this isn't the only one that we can do that with. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1974, or the Invasion of Astro Monster movie, and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Those are three movies right off the top of my head I can think of that if you're a nationalist and you see what, what you want to see, you could come up with some sometimes unsettling conclusions. Mm-hmm. Particularly the 1974 film, considering that the, you know, the uh, aliens essentially are simians.
0: Mm-hmm. And they are hiding a nuclear base on Okinawa to create a superweapon.
1: But examining issues aren't the same as actually taking a position on those issues. Like in the 1954 and 1984 movies, Shin Godzilla is an unvarnished and complex expression of the Japanese national spirit. However, for the first time, this movie wasn't edited into another version first. For the 1954 movie, we saw an edited version in 1956, and we waited until 2006 for the original. That's 52 years. For the 1984 movie, we saw an edited version in 1985, and we waited until 2016 to see the original. That's 32 years. For the 2016 movie, we saw the original version in 2016, and it was shown in movie theaters across the country, including Fort Wayne, which is where we are. I would expect some to react negatively, because any two given people, especially Americans but also Japanese, may not interpret this film in the exact same way. So what was taken out of the 1954 and 84 originals? The politics. The history. The Japanese national spirit. Why was that taken out? Because of the way the Japanese national spirit was expressed. The 1954 film got edited into a normal giant monster movie. The 1984 film almost got turned into a disaster were it not for Raymond Burr, who quite possibly saved the movie from a fate worse than death.
0: (laughs) Yeah, keeping it from becoming entirely
1: B-movie schlock. Now here's my real point. It's my understanding that Godzilla fans like the original versions of the 1954 and 84 movies because it's the real thing. It's a truly real foreign film experience because expurgating the spirit is wrong. Well, Shin Godzilla is the real thing, and we don't have to see a 90-minute dubbed version first and then sit around for decades for the original. If we had seen a cut version first, the complaint would have been what? We want the real thing. We want Godzilla. Give us the real Godzilla. Instead, we got the real thing right away in the theaters and delivered on a disc to our front doorstep, or if you stream it. But now, there are complaints that this movie is nationalistic, etc., Which is exactly what I would have predicted what would have happened with the 1954 and 84 films, had they been released as is. Just like I enjoyed the real thing for the 1954 and 84 movies, I enjoy the real thing here. Do we like this movie simply because it's from Japan?
0: No. No. I find it terribly ironic that we get an uncut version of this movie released only three months after it's been out in Japan... And the response to it has been a little bit of a mixed bag over here. Whereas for years, Godzilla fans, kaiju fans, fans of Japanese monster movies in general were clamoring, fighting to get these movies brought over here in high quality presentations, in widescreen, subtitled, uncut, all of these things. And they were eventually rewarded with that. The film companies started listening, and they started creating pr- uh, presentations of these films like this. New DVDs were coming out that had subtitles, that had all these things for them. And then the same thing happens here. For the first time, we have a solo Godzilla movie that's highly political, and they don't react to it like, uh, like you, I would expect them to. Not with excitement about how we don't have to worry about waiting forever to get this in the original version as the creators intended it. The irony of it, of it just gets to me. A lot of the titles
1: in the Godzilla series, they were technically known as rare DVDs. (laughs) Yeah. I remember that. A lot of people remember that.
0: I remember trying to track a few of them down on VHS, and the VHSs were hard to come by because they hadn't been released on DVD yet.
1: Or if you look on websites to buy them, they can sometimes have very high prices because it's out of print. Yeah. Our next sort of subheading in this conversation about the big picture of Shin Godzilla we want to talk about how this movie is realistic and satirical one of the biggest objectives the creatives of, Sh- of Shin Godzilla had was realism it's the most realistic godzilla movie ever especially with regards to the military equipment and the governmental procedures hideki ano in an interview he said asia is where it's at now we'd best be good with our neighbors The previous generation is with America. In my generation, though, you turn more and more to domestic matters, and you look more inward. And that's a lot of what this movie is actually about. It's looking inward. It's about domestic issues, just as this movie is obviously for the domestic audience first and foremost. But he has to be realistic in this movie, too, so Japan's most important ally is the United States. Russia and China are mentioned together, and are mostly viewed as unproductive since they use the United Nations to pressure Japan. As this movie is very realistic, in a lot of ways, the security treaty and the status of the SDF are subjects. For the first time ever, the United States and its military play a key role in the story. America participates not only in the military-only plan to get rid of Godzilla, but also in Operation Yashiori, which is our plan B. Japan needs the help of the U.S. both times. Japan asks for help from the U.S. both times. And they get our help both times. Japan is working with allies that they already have in real life. In this way, Japan is showing that it can and will have good relations with Western democracies around the world. But this is a difficult balancing act. It's a tough question in Japan about how to build up the military and protect itself while also eschewing militarism at the same time there are historical issues. No one said this was going to be easy. The current security environment in East Asia is incredibly tense. Japan is building up its armed forces and increasing its defense budget because of North Korea's belligerence and China's expansionist military buildup. 83% of Japanese view China unfavorably, and only 4% say China's military buildup is good for Japan. At the same time, the United States is rebalancing its military commitments in East Asia. And as the U.S. reduces its role, Japan does have to fill the vacuum that is left in order for things to remain stable. We don't believe that Japan having to spend more on its military is a wonderful thing. We kind of wish that they didn't have to. But that's just how things are right now. Shin Godzilla shows how young people save the country. Younger people are more hopeful about the future than older people are. Young people are mostly patriotic, they propose inventive ways to solve problems, and they want to challenge the system, and they have a can do spirit. In polls, younger people even have more faith in government than older people do. Like Yaguchi, our protagonist, they propose bold policy solutions. They're sympathetic as well. There's this idea that there's a symbiotic relationship going on between geeks and nerds and the state, though. Yeah. Uh, the supposed message is that geeks and nerds should join with the state, therefore making the geeks and nerds more powerful and making the state more powerful. <laughs> Which
0: I, I didn't really get that a lot of, Yeah, that doesn't even make a lot of sense because all those characters are supposed to be outcasts and they're trying to bypass the government bureaucracy to get stuff done
1: yeah yaguchi and his gang are in fact working against the state's plan of surrendering to international pressure if anyone has a symbiotic relationship with the state it's probably akasaka
0: yeah most definitely
1: um yeah that's his whole character as a conformist he is in tight with the old guard and the state the original movie railed against the conformists in the diet When the diet was destroyed, the audience cheered. (laughs) One reason that they might have cheered was they just thought that it was all BS. Yeah. Realism is the reason why the bureaucracy is so inflexible and is such a failure in Shin Godzilla. Especially during the 311 disasters, the whole system failed, and it failed all the people that it served. This is such a big part of the movie because it's mirroring what happened in the 311 disaster. Regarding bureaucracies, bureaucracies are not good at solving new problems, especially if that problem is urgent and evolving, as this one is. This is a case where a second lost thinking or asking questions to experts is a second that you lose and that you spend in not responding. The whole thing about this, you know, all this stuff isn't in the manual. We can't, we haven't done any exercises for this. This is unprecedented. You want me to make a decision right now? Yeah.
0: All of these instances where a quick decision is necessary, but those in power don't know how to respond.
1: And they're good at fixing things once they learn how to, and they're pretty slow at it. But they're good at going from one room to another in meetings. Japanese culture is not as much about telling coworkers and especially bosses about how to make something better or anything that causes trouble. Everyone protects their own turf. They pass the buck and the decision-making processes are terribly slow. If a lower employee has a bunch of good ideas, it's probably not wise to tell your superiors. The Japanese can relate to how bureaucracy is depicted in Shin Godzilla because they know how much things work like this. I kept having flashbacks to Akiru. Which is a brilliant film, by the way. Yeah, starring Takashi Shimura. It's one of the greatest movies possibly ever made. Another movie strongly related to Akiru is Brazil. Yes. Created by Terry Gilliam.
0: Which took a lot of inspiration from Akiru.
1: Watch the long version of it, though. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's related to Orwell's 1984 as well. Mm -hmm. And it heavily criticizes bureaucracy. Another way this movie is realistic is the amount of hesitation in the government with regards to the use of force. Because the JSDF in this universe has never been activated, because this doesn't even acknowledge the first movie. It pretends as if no other movie in the entire series exists. It
0: is a total reboot. It's also
1: accurate that the SDF is the last line of defense in Japan, although the U.S. plays a large role. What's more, this movie is accurate about how civilians control the JSDF. Civilian control of the armed forces is a keystone of democracy. The JSDF in real life are volunteers. They sacrifice themselves, if needed, in order to protect their country. They are here to save others, if they are called to do so. This is exactly how the JSDF works, and that's how they're treated in this movie. One thing I don't understand is that Americans don't seem to connect to the
0: satire of bureaucracy, or they just miss it. And That is really surprising, because, I mean... I don't think we, uh, the United States has quite as much of a glut of, of, of bureaucracy, but we're all familiar with it.
1: Yeah. American bureaucracy can be pretty bad, too, depending on what you are trying to do. What's funny is 57% of Japanese trust their national government to do what's right for their country. In the United States, it's 51%. <laughs> so they actually have more faith in their government than we do. And I feel like if Americans knew more about the movie... Before they went in to see it, they might have known what to look for,
2: mm-hmm. and they
1: would have understood it better. But it's hard to make a trailer about this aspect of the satire. I don't know how you're going to do that because that yeah. didn't come through and didn't really in come the through. And even even the, the government ish trailer, it, it yeah, didn't really, it didn't. It was yeah. just more about them responding. But yeah, what, it, it didn't go into the level of satire.
0: No, it didn't. And the The trailers for this presented it as maybe at best something of a political thriller that had a kaiju in it. That was about the most you could get out of it.
1: Our last subheading in this talk about how we view the big picture of this movie is how this is just a movie and there is plenty of satire. And that might be the issue here. There's a lot of realism that we aren't used to in Godzilla movies and that's right up against a whole lot of satire.
0: Which is very... Interesting juxtaposition, to say the least. And the U.S.-Japan alliance is satirized
1: on a regular basis during this movie. And they're not being serious as much as they are reflecting a wide variety of Japanese opinions about the U.S. Kaoko, she is the personification of the satire of Japan's relationship with the U.S. And we need to examine her character arc to truly understand how this character functions. Because at the beginning, she looks at Japan as a tributary state that will do anything she says. She's unfamiliar about how Japan works. And she's kind of arrogant. In a way, she sort of depersonalizes Japan, much in the same way that some people think Japan is some sort of anime town, like from... Who
0: Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, this, this magical fantasy world where... Filled with Pokemon. Filled with Pokemon and anime and manga and kaiju and tokusatsu. That's all it is. You know, and Tokyo all...
1: gets destroyed all the time. Yeah all, stuff. They,
0: yeah, all they see is cool Japan.
1: But as the story progresses, Kyoko learns more about Japan, and once the gravity of the situation gets worse in the second act, the Japanese part of her activates, so to speak. Her character is Japanese-American, She's talking with Yaguchi and then referring to Godzilla. She gets part of the way through the word in English,
0: and she starts again and says the Japanese word for Godzilla. Which is not effectively communicated in the subtitles. So it was something that I actually missed until you pointed it out, Brian.
1: And at this point, she has personalized Japan. She gets the reality of Japan's position, and her character has become matured. So as she learns more about Japan, the more understanding she becomes of the country and its people. This is identical to the path many Americans take once they learn more about Japan, or any other country for that matter. The more you learn about it, the more you are able to personalize it. It's also possible that the film views Japanese Americans positively, and that since a Japanese American's participation in Operation Yashiori helped defeat Godzilla, this movie may be looking at Japanese Americans as a bridge between the two countries. Because of the fact that this movie is a satire, Americans shouldn't take it too seriously. This is, after all, a Godzilla movie. Even though things are realistically depicted visually, the satire reigns supreme. I'm not offended by the criticisms of America, as in reality, Japan and the U.S. are extremely close. Prime Minister Abe called the alliance an alliance of hope. In the aftermath of the 311 disaster, 80% of the Japanese polled had a favorable view of the U.S. Operation Tomodachi was a U.S. operation involving 24,000 U.S. service members, 189 aircraft, and 24 naval ships. The operation provided aid, helped with water to supply to the nuclear plant, and lots of other kinds of help. We have good relations despite all the history, and as a result, the alliance can withstand satirical criticism in a Godzilla movie. Shin Godzilla criticizes Japan more than it criticizes anything else, after all.
0: I was going to say, I mean, if a handful of remarks here and there about the U.S. means this movie hates America, then man, it must despise Japan.
1: (laughs) Since this is a satire, this movie does play around with issues, in the same way Anno does when he writes other stories. The movie expresses a wide variety of opinions within Japanese society— and people will draw their own conclusions based on their own viewpoints. But simply playing around with these subjects isn't the same as actually endorsing a particular policy. I would refer you to Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, where the movie Hardcore plays around with subjects like Japan's post-war success, Japanese nationalism, and the rest of the world going after Japan because of its tremendous
0: success in the future. And by the way, that film was written and directed by somebody who said he loved America? In Invasion of Astro
1: Monster, the movie plays around with the international affairs implications of alien invasions. But just because this movie fools around with things, it doesn't mean it's taking a position. This movie would be diminished if it took a particular position on hot button political issues in Japan.
0: Yeah. As Brian said, Ano has done this sort of stuff before. He's best known for his classic anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. Now, while that show is more psychological than it is political, it's full of ambiguity and pseudo-symbolism, which has driven many viewers, including myself, crazy. But it's also why it's considered a classic. It's open to interpretation, and trust me, I've heard some wild theories on it. Shin Godzilla is the same way. Shin Godzilla expresses a spectrum of opinions in Japanese society,
1: and therefore, it appears to be giving us sort of mixed signals, or signals that contradict themselves. Like, they like America, but they kind of resent being ordered around. They push us away, then they continue to hug us. The relationship is too one-sided, but it still works out in the end and saves the day. This is the movie's way of saying that a lot of these issues are not clear-cut as a result of the realism, This movie is showing differing views.
0: This film both validates and invalidates many different positions. It's similar to comic writer Alan Moore and his classic graphic novel, Watchmen. Watchmen presents ideas on both sides of the spectrum and ends in such a way that it allows readers to decide for themselves who was right. But I didn't necessarily react the same way that everybody who read it did. And that's one of the things that makes it genius, Shin Godzilla also shows us how the national security
1: of the U.S. and the national security of Japan don't always line up perfectly. The U.S. is covering up their involvement with the research project. That's one of the things going on. At the same time, Masato Ibu's character, Motohiko Sugira, in Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, does say, but every country must have its secret research projects. Yep. However, When all is said and done, their relationship with the U.S. does work well overall, and the movie appears to say that. I would be more concerned if Shin Godzilla expressed only a positive or only a negative sentiment about the United States. Neither would go over very well in Japan or really here, and that would arguably be actual propaganda due to its one-sidedness. Moreover, Japan at no point in this movie, tells the United States to withdraw its military outposts from Japan, nor do they say that they want out of the security treaty.
0: I'm glad you brought up that if it had gone one way or the other, all positive or all negative, that it would have been propaganda. Because I've actually heard someone label Shin Godzilla as Japanese nationalist propaganda. He went on to say that it was okay to like this film, but that its fans shouldn't deny what it really is. Well, I deny that Shin Godzilla is propaganda because it isn't. It's a movie, a movie with a lot to say on important subjects, but it's ultimately an escapist fantasy meant to entertain an audience for two hours and make a lot of money, just like any movie. I know propaganda when I see it, and I'm sure most people would see through it if this film was propaganda. Getting back to why Ono's being ambiguous about things and letting people
1: decide for themselves. That's why Abe praised this movie, <laughs> even though it doesn't endorse his p- specific policies, really. He felt that it did, mm-hmm. but you can also find plenty of evidence in the story to refute that assertion. The public blame, the prime minister, the entire bureaucracy, TEPCO, that's the electricity company, the authorities, everyone, the whole system is being criticized here. We're not saying that there's not a nationalist interpretation of some of the events in this movie, but examining an issue is not necessarily endorsing a given position There are also quite a few movies in the Godzilla series you could say that about. We've done a few episodes about movies where there's complex symbolism going on. We do understand what Japanese far-right nationalism is, and I am familiar with the history of it up to its present day. We're not going to endorse any Japanese political parties or candidates (laughs) or positions.
0: It's not really our place to do so. No,
1: that's up to the Japanese to decide it for themselves. We don't believe this movie's nationalist propaganda. We don't think that praising this movie is an endorsement of the Liberal Democratic Party, Prime Minister Abe, or, or party agendas, political agendas, etc. I would point out, though, that for Americans to accuse this movie of being nationalist militarist propaganda does sound kind of odd. We do have 50,000 troops in Japan, as well as other troops that are spread across approximately 150 countries, 64%. Of the Japanese public say that China's power and influence is a major threat to their country, while 62% say America's power and influence is a major threat to their country. That's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, but it's also understandable. Anytime you have a superpower like this exerting a lot of influence, it can make other nations a bit nervous. Nervous,
1: Yeah. In the 1984 movie, it was the Soviet Union and the U.S. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, so things have so J- changed a little bit, and yeah. now it's China and the U.S.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but again, Japan is finding itself sandwiched, caught in the middle between these two superpowers.
1: Well, that concludes our discussion of what we think of Shin Godzilla, the big picture. Now we're going to move on to the chronological rundown of the film up next.
0: You're listening to Kaiju Visionary.
1: We will start with our chronological rundown of the movie very shortly, but we'll get to our general impressions on the movie first very quickly. One, I love the music.
0: <laughs> actually, we would highly recommend that you actually listen to the Shin Godzilla soundtrack.
1: <laughs> yeah, we listened to it a lot. Uh, oh my when gosh, we were I both was list- preparing for this episode. I
0: was listening to it constantly, putting all these notes together, writing part one. It was it has been pervading. <laughs> my, uh, my ears so much.
1: <laughs> I love the English lyrics in the music that was created by Shiro Sugisu
0: Which doesn't surprise me at all because he, he worked with Ano on the yeah, Genesis Evangelion and he did similar things in there as well.
1: And of course the classic Yukifube music is played just at the right time and totally works.
0: Mm-hmm. It's several points in the movie too.
1: Okay. Number two, I like that this movie is for adults.
0: It's a very grown-up movie.
1: Three, the sound is pretty great. Mm -hmm. I like the interesting 3.1 mix. Mm -hmm. Four, cinematography.
0: Yeah. The cinematography in this is incredible. It's unlike anything we've seen in any of the previous movies. We're not seeing miniatures in this. It's footage of real cities with Godzilla added in with CGI, and that allows for shots that could never be achieved before. And Ono loves fast panning camera angles because it has a lot of energy.
1: Yes, it's shot so well. And the CGI, this is a $15 million movie after all. It's not a $250 million CGI amusement park ride. This, this is a little bit different scale-wise. And so you just got to remember that too if, if you have misgivings with the CGI. I don't really have all that much. I like the tail being up in the air because mm-hmm. they can finally do that now. Mm-hmm. That's different. I like that. Mm-hmm. And this Godzilla, this version of Godzilla, is probably a one-off version.
0: Yeah. The interesting thing that we found out at G Fest last year in 2017 was that the Godzilla in this was made using motion capture, which yes. I didn't know. I thought it was just entirely CGI. Uh, They used a, a street performer who integrated traditional Japanese dance into his performance. I think Higuchi mentioned that the form of dance that he was doing was meant to portray gods. So it definitely fits in with the presentation and themes they were getting at with Godzilla in this film. Getting back to how this movie's shot, you have to film
1: all of these scenes right in order to keep people engaged, especially with all these government scenes like this. And seeing it on a big screen makes it even better. But you have to film it. It's almost film like an action movie. I know. Sometimes going back and forth. And there's a lot of activity that probably doesn't work. And so it might be the best cinematography or camera work, maybe in the entire franchise.
0: Definitely up there.
1: As far as just new style. Mm-hmm. But the classic style, there's going to be a different champion in that category.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Ano has this uncanny ability to shoot something that would normally be very boring, like any of these government meetings, or even the meetings with Yoguchi and his band of rebels, and he makes them exciting.
1: Five, the subtitles. I'm a big fan of subtitles. I watch movies with subtitles all the time and with captions, whatever it takes in order to get the words on the screen. I guess some have said that there's too many subtitles. It, it is a little
0: bit daunting, I have to admit. <laughs>
1: First time seeing it in the theater was a bit daunting.
0: Yeah, because you you have three levels of subtitles because it'll be location, character name and position, dialogue. So you're just you're getting bombarded with it. You have you almost have to watch the movie at least twice, maybe even three times to try to catch everything.
1: The pause button is your friend. Yeah. And unfortunately, you can't do that in the theater.
0: No, which was one of the things that made it a little bit frustrating in the theater. But it was also one of the things I was, I wondered to myself, I was like, I wonder what this would be like in the dub, if it would be easier to process. And for one of my rewatchings for this podcast, I actually did watch it in the dub. And the dub is all right. The, some of the, you can tell that Funimation was using people who normally dub anime because the voices were a little bit odd. But the dialogue mm. and the acting was actually pretty good. It made it a little easier to process, but it wasn't necessarily better.
1: While preparing for this episode, I went on to that movie database oh as boy. we refer, as I refer to the, the reviews of this movie are f- about fifty to sixty percent depressing. Yes, I understand that this isn't the kind of Godzilla movie you apparently wanted to see. Don't worry, there's a lot more Godzilla movies that aren't like this than ones that are. Because there's pretty much only, including this one, there are three movies that are really like this. Mm-hmm. I don't expect the American Godzilla movies coming up to be like this. I'm not even going to you know, entertain <laughs> that thought. So don't worry, there's going to be plenty of stuff that isn't like this this was the restart in a way the restart of the new series even though 2014 was for us here Mm -hmm. but it was the first japanese one in a very long time yeah 12 years it's just that let us have our fun yes i was gonna say because there's some (laughs) of the fan base that do enjoy these ones and so we'll don't don't worry we're not gonna trash the uh the ones that are coming up that aren't shin So it's not like we They can coexist.
0: Yeah. We here at Kaiju Vision Radio do like our Godzilla to come in multiple flavors, and we're okay with that.
1: At this point in time, you may want to turn on your Shin Godzilla soundtrack music if you're into that. (laughs) Because we're now going to start our chronological rundown of the movie. Here we go.
0: So my first one is actually the titles. Immediately, we're getting some nice nostalgic references here. We have the old school sound effects, you get to hear Godzilla's footfalls and roars, which is just like how Godzilla 54 opened. We even get to see two Toho logos, because it has the modern logo, and then the old school logo.
1: Then we get to our boat, and it's called the uh, Glory Maru, which that was the same name as the first ship in 1954 Godzilla that uh, Godzilla destroyed. Then we get our Goromaki character, which is also a not the same person by any means, but it's the same name. Yeah. Obviously, the shoes indicated that he it was may have been a suicide. Then we get our blood, the tunnel that is a definite horror movie material oh, right yeah. there. So <laughs> sort of getting all the adults uh, in, into this, and it's a, sort of like a tsunami of blood just coming into the tunnel, the, yeah. uh, the aquiline tunnel. Yeah. Our explosion is parallel to possibly the earthquake part of Three Eleven. Mm-hmm. the 9.1 earthquake.
0: The first spotting of Godzilla out to sea. Earthquakes happen often
1: in Japan. So initially it's treated like a normalish kind of occurrence.
0: Yeah. They, no one thinks much of it.
1: Yeah. That's Again. the whole dynamic in the first act, really. Is, mm-hmm. We didn't expect that to happen.
0: Again, much like
1: 311. We're taken to the prime minister's residence, or the other name for that is the Sori Daijin Kante, or simply the Kante. And we're mired in bureaucracy from the beginning At about two minutes in, the crisis management room is there, and it's our crisis management center, and it's very similar to the crisis management center for the 311 disaster. Immediately, we're going into managing the disaster, and first thing they do is reorganization after a meeting in the conference room, and our our satire is off and running.
0: You'll notice that a lot of, especially early on in the film, there's some found footage-style shots, mostly using people's smartphones and these are holdovers from an initial idea they had where they were planning on making this a found footage Godzilla movie. So they were more or less making Cloverfield, but set in Japan and having Godzilla. It was done because social media and amateur video were commonly used on 3.11. Unfortunately, they abandoned the idea because of budget. Or fortunately. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> having it peppered throughout is pro- certainly added some flavor and style. Not sure how it would have gone over if the whole movie was like that.
1: Yeah. At 317, there's a picture of the Kisarazu man-made island, which is in Tokyo Bay. And that's where the bridge meets the tunnel. And if you find this location on Google Earth, zoom in and you will find two footprints.
0: Large footprints.
1: With four toes. Mm Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. I didn't know about that. I didn't either. I just happened to see that when I zoomed in. And I was like, what is that? Oh my gosh, that's awesome. 328, there's the part with the evacuees sliding down from the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And they're laughing and kind of just nonchalant about it. Mm-hmm. I remember um,
0: seeing that in the trailers as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We see the prime minister for the first time, four minutes in. Nearly the first thing out of his mouth is never mind the details.
0: <laughs> uh, really sets the scene for the whole movie and his character, doesn't it?
1: Leave it to the people downstairs if there's nobody dead, too. In the PM's room, that's Prime Minister, in the PM's room, we have the Minister Sekiguchi, and he's uh, from the Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology, or MEXT, <laughs> or M A X T. He mentions the possibility of an unidentified nuclear submarine meltdown. So this is the first time they say the word meltdown mm-hmm. in this movie. He's the one who the panel of experts idea comes from, which ends up being totally useless. The defense minister, Hana Mori, is the, the woman there. Strong looking character. I like it. Yes, <laughs> In a certain way that maybe it's just me picking things up that I, that aren't there, but she kind of looks like Yuriko Koike, who is the first female Defense minister from Japan in 2007, and she's currently the governor of Tokyo. I don't know if that matters at all, but if you get a picture of her and if you look at the uh, defense minister Hanamori, look back and forth at those two pictures and you'll get what I mean. The undersea eruption idea is floated, and then the other minister has to say, Excuse me, and say it's definitely not. And then the guy says, well, you should have told me sooner. And he's like, sorry. All, all this is so counterproductive to actually solving the problem. 502, Yaguchi speaks to the PM for the first time. And he says, there's something down there. I looked on my phone three minutes ago and saw footage from people's devices. And the first response is what? Preposterous. Mm-hmm. Video footage of the actual thing? Preposterous. Nothing conclusive. And then we change rooms again for another meeting after not listening to what Yaguchi wants to say. Mm-hmm. The chief cabinet secretary, Ryuta Azuma, is played by Akira Imoto, and he was General Akira Yuki in Space Godzilla from mm-hmm. 1994. The guy with the blood coagulant gun. <laughs> He's actually one of my favorite characters. I, I, I really like how he has his glasses down on his nose like that.
0: Yaguchi is told by Akasaka not to rock the boat. He tells him, quote, it's good to be a rebel, but think of the guy who got you here. I can't help but wonder if akasaka uh, who Akasaka is talking about. Was it him? He seems to be a little older than Yuguchi, so maybe he got Yoguchi the position that he has now.
1: I'd say it was him that he was talking about,
0: yeah, oh really, because mm-hmm. it's not really specified, so that's my guess, yeah. If it is, he's looking out for himself. Akasaka is. It makes sense, given how much of a conformist Akasaka is. Plus, this is yet another film's commentaries on the Japanese political system, which is based more on loyalty and favors than merit.
1: There's a lot of pressure in Japan to conform sometimes, and that's another thing that's kind of coming through with that moment. This also made me think of Ikiru. At
2: mm-hmm.
1: the beginning of Ikiru, what are they doing? The women who want the 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 leak or the standing water. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. it was, yeah. They are going around from department to department to department. They do a whole montage of that. It's pretty interesting. That's, what, that's the way the film is kicked off.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But th- yeah, this reminded me of Kiru again.
0: It also sets up some nice interpersonal conflict between Akasaka and Yaguchi because he's telling him to cool it and Yaguchi is torn. He doesn't know if he should go with what the, you know, this older guy says or if he should do what he wants to do.
1: Akasaka seems to be the embodiment of conformism. He's the yin to uh, Yaguchi's, Yaguchi's yang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. 628. There's a subtle subtitle at the top that says Agriculture Minister in Absentia.
0: Yes. And that's who <laughs> ends
1: up becoming Prime Minister next. Satomi. I'm wondering if he's the sort of designated survivor because there's one cabinet member that and you know is gone mm-hmm. at all times. I wonder if it's like that. Then we have a part where the official is talking about evacuation and preparedness and about closing Haneda Airport, about possible ash and debris. And then this piece of paper gets sort of tossed on the table in front of him, which he takes offense to, or it's out of order, at least, he thinks. And it's about safety over economic concerns, yada, yada, yada. Typical bureaucracy. And I've worked in bureaucracy before, and I understand how a lot of that works. Then it abbreviates the meeting to go to another part of the same meeting. So it's like later that same meeting.
0: Yeah, that was actually going to be the the next point I was going to bring up. I love the little the little subtitle card that pops up and says the following abbreviated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it's it's auto humorously presenting the important highlights of these meetings, but also showing how these meetings are long. They are tedious. And as you said, anyone who's worked in government or who follows government knows that that's exactly how these meetings are.
1: Then they're told it's died down, no problem anymore. To me, this feels like the point in between the earthquake and the tsunami Mm -hmm. in the timeline.
0: This very much illustrates the government's delayed response to Godzilla, which then also reflects the delayed response to 311. Yaguchi goes against protocol and culture by speaking up. He's young, so he's dismissed. Seniority is respected in in Japan over merit, which we'll see throughout this film. This is called into question since these older politicians make poor decisions and the young rebels get stuff done. Anyway, Yaguchi's assertion that the threat is a large marine animal is called a joke. Less than a minute later, though, he's vindicated.
1: When they finally turn on the TV that's right in front of them. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. And then the result... They go to another room for another
0: meeting, and this time it's the cabinet. About eight minutes into the movie is when you get your first real shot of Godzilla, but it's just his tail. 841, they, it show, it has
1: the part with the tail, and then the sound is off. Mm-hmm. That's quite effective. Yes, it is. And then Akasaka has to recommend to the Prime Minister that they coordinate a response, and he's like, oh, of course. And then meanwhile, that's unprecedented.
0: <laughs> like a lot of things in this movie. Right after that, we start to see that the prime minister is now suddenly in a hurry. Because he wants an answer fast. Because he says, bring me somebody who knows something. Before that, he, was, he seemed pretty content to wallow in the bureaucracy and wallow in protocol. He's beginning to feel the gravity of the situation. But he's also probably concerned for his own political well-being. He knows he's in over his head. And he's unprepared for this crisis. Immediately, the environmentalists
1: say it has to be saved because it's wildlife. And so mm-hmm. then that's even more injection of indecision here.
0: I love this part during this meeting where Yoguchi speaks up and proposes a solution or at least a next step and everyone's looking around and then one guy looks at him and says, I'm sorry, who are you addressing? Yeah. Total failure. <laughs> they're completely confused. They don't they're so dedicated to protocol that chain of command. Yeah, chain of command that they don't, <laughs> they can't figure out what he's trying to get at. At 1041, there is talk of a vapor
1: cloud. Did you see that? Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a Fukushima reference as well. It wouldn't surprise me. The prime minister, with the help of our Ministry of Education, Tourism, blah, 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 next, he's referring to experts who are old and grizzled and bored and not interested except with their own agenda. Democracy is imperfect, but it's better than deferring to the so-called experts. What is needed is information and coordinated action. It's actually a pretty humorous scene, cutting back and forth to the drumming of fingers Mm -hmm. on the chair. It's a fabulous way to show frustration.
0: With all the the scientists, the consulted scientists sitting there. And one of them
1: even said, well, the video might be a fake. You have to confirm that that's real, Mm -hmm. which is probably the most infuriating one out of those. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a little bit of a subversion of expectations, because normally you expect these the scientists are being consulted to know exactly what's going on and what needs to be done, or they can at least figure it out. But here, <laughs> they got nothing. Next, we cut to images of boats being displaced by Godzilla. And I'm sure for the Japanese audience, this was haunting, because the tsunami on 311 did the same thing.
1: One of the people from the environmental ministry, one of our rebels, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's Hiromi Ogashira, and she is the Environment Ministry Wildlife Division deputy position. I was saying that she kind of looks like a... Or it seems like a Japanese Daria Morgendorfer.
0: Like, <laughs> okay. where's, where's Tracy Grandstaff when you need her? <laughs> I love this character. She's amazing. <laughs> she's plain looking, but intelligent and wryly sarcastic. And she's, she's very unemotional and detached, despite everything that's going on throughout the re- most of this movie.
1: It, it goes back to them at the table, because she's sitting in a chair by mm-hmm. the wall. And they're looking at her having to turn around and everything. And they're like, well, she's not even at the table. Who's she?
0: From the get go, it's uh, we know that she's a rebel. One of our characters says, frankly, we haven't
1: determined which agency it falls under. That's also perfect, Ikiru, mm-hmm. Brazil. Right after that, we have our Mex minister again, and he's like one of the probably fossils that he had down in that one, you know, greeting room mm-hmm. with the scientists. Is news that. Godzilla has fin-like feet, so it can't go on land. And then Hiromi sort of interrupts and says, well, actually, that's incorrect. And the environmental minister then apologizes to the prime minister for his deputy chief's poor decorum. And then our next minister, Sekiguchi, he gives Hiromi this hilarious, (laughs) nasty look (laughs) for her daring to say something contradictory, (laughs) even though it's factual, ends up being factual. (laughs) If looks could kill, man. (laughs) Then this idea of a press conference is floated and they tell, you know, in order to calm the public then they should be getting a handle on the situation actually. But now they're sidetracking to PR, Mm -hmm. even though they haven't found really any information about this at all. This part with the uniform, the workman's overalls. Overalls? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Prime minister Naoto Kan actually wore that during the emergency phase of 311. And after the design, after the disaster finally finished happening and the aftermath was predictable, he went back to his business suit. But he wore overalls to that first press conference that he did. The other high-ranking officials that you saw by him, they were also wearing workman's overalls. Mm -hmm. In the real press conference, authorities said that no harmful gases escaped the nuclear plant. This was just water vapor from the cooling process, which this ended up not being true. Prime Minister Khan told President Obama that there was no harmful gas release in a phone call. In the movie press conference, what happens? He says that Godzilla is not expected to come on land, Then immediately found out
0: (laughs) it's on land.
1: (laughs) Which that's totally uh, sort of reenactment of what actually happened with all this. Three of the six units at Fukushima had cooling system failures. And the tsunami went right over the wall.
0: Another really satirical scene at this point is the, there's a scene where that cuts back and forth between the politicians saying the situation isn't that bad and Godzilla displacing boats in the river.
1: <laughs> yeah, a really big you know, contrast between reality and the world that they're bubbled. Yeah. Their bubble is in.
0: What they're trying to present to the public. Yeah. We have probably my favorite track on the entire soundtrack which is called Persecution of the Masses was wonderful mhm it has become the theme of this movie and has joined the likes of any of afukabe's marches and oshima's godzilla themes the lyrics were actually written from the people's perspective and as you m- noted Brian, they're they're written in english it subtly hints at the description of Godzilla that will, that will be stated later in the film, which is godlikeness. While the Odo Island legend is only mentioned in passing in this film, it retains the idea that was presented in the original film. Some have argued that in Godzilla 54, it blurred the line between god, saying Godzilla was a god or a mutation. And while that isn't as strong here, this song does play around with that idea. It communicates a Lovecraftian dread and helplessness in the face of an overwhelmingly powerful being that cares nothing for them. And to be honest, it's tracks like this that make me rank this as one of the best soundtracks in the franchise. And I would put Sugisu up there with the likes of Ifukabe, Sato, and Oshima.
1: Yeah, the impact is so big with the, with the panic scenes and, and all this happening about that time. And it's amazing. The, getting on to Kamada-kun... Mm-hmm. When we saw it here in town, the mm-hmm. audience was like, what is this?
0: I had the same reaction initially. I was
1: like, okay, but I was confused mm-hmm. because in fact, I, I actually we didn't obviously get everything.
0: The yeah, first time we yeah. saw this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I actually but, uh, remember blurting out in the theater. Are you trolling me? Because I really was expecting to see Godzilla. Yeah, and instead I did
1: Instead, it's a big bunch of irony. Yeah. And, you know, obviously this plays into the whole, the disaster was underestimated at every step. It's something minor that ends up turning into something really big.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, with the big googly eyes and that dopey face, it was, initially it was hard to take seriously. But then, after a few minutes, I realized this is Anno's particular brand of irony. A terrifying monster that looks goofy. I I wasn't even sure at first that it was even Godzilla. And it also works to subvert the audience's expectations because there was nothing in any of the promotional materials that even hinted at there being multiple forms of Godzilla. So I really do appreciate the surprise. Later, we get our
1: criticism of the culture of Japan as far as meetings. The Japanese are really big with meetings. Before something happens, we have to do a meeting first. And it's Japanese business culture, Japanese government culture. Then they refer to it as the foundation of I would what I would think would be Japanese capital D democracy. Mm -hmm. This criticism is what we have to in order to have a press conference, we have to have a meeting first.
0: Mm -hmm. That's their normal.
1: And it's just slowing everything down.
0: Mm -hmm. In some ways, that line seems to be a a little bit of a resignation. At
1: 1708, we get this great shot of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building, a.k.a. Tax Tower, just down and to the right of that a block is the Shinjuku Sumitomo building. You might remember that from Godzilla 2000 when it was called City Tower. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many people who saw Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and Godzilla 2000 that they didn't realize that these two buildings are extremely close to each other. (laughs) The governor and his bureaucrats say everyone has to self-evacuate. We'll control traffic and then it shows the traffic pandemonium where uh, that's just... There's no traffic flow happening at all. Everybody has to get out of their cars. Regarding the governor of Tokyo, the, the haircut is, is like exactly the same as Shintaro Ishihara. Oh, really? Who, who was governor during Three Eleven and huh. was uh, in in office until 2012. Hmm. But if you look again, it's one of those situations where if you took the picture of one and the other, uh, it, it looks really similar.
2: Hmm.
1: Obviously, our hapless family getting destroyed. In this apartment building, uh, that—that's obviously how earthquake stuff happened in Three Eleven.
0: It's—it's horrific to watch.
1: Yeah, they did a good job with the effects, actually. Yes, showing how that happens—it's mm-hmm. actually pretty good.
0: 1850,
1: there's a huge deal with the Constitution on the screen. Yes, which uh, cinematography-wise, that's genius. Yeah, it's such that's... a great way to do this. I.
0: That's actually a, a, a trademark of Anno's style. He did similar things like that in Neon Genesis Evangelion. So it didn't surprise me at all when it, when that was uh, when that was shown.
1: However, I don't view this little scene as against the constitution or displaying, you know, how their constitution is so darn problematic. And I, I don't see this as complaining. Is part of the realism mm-hmm. of it's... how a real Godzilla scenario would have to work. You, In order to deploy troops, you have to look at the Constitution and figure out what it falls under. The SDF deployment stipulations are quite accurate. And this isn't a scenario they're prepared for, nor is the Constitution clear. Mm-hmm. But I don't view this as, when the Constitution is in the way of us doing whatever we want. I, I don't get
0: no, that. No, it's just being debated. It's being talked about.
1: This is a momentous action, though, because... None of these other Godzilla movies exist in this universe. So this is the very first time that the SDF is
0: deployed. Deployed like this anyway.
1: In nearly all the rest of these movies, what happens? Well, the military is automatically Mm self-deployed. And there's no mention of any of this stuff with the Constitution or anything else. They just appear out of... Sometimes, at least in some of these movies, they appear out of nowhere instantly. Mm -hmm. As soon as a monster appears... Bam, they're right there.
0: Mm-hmm. It, the fact that they're showing this in a realistic fashion really shows how much we take for granted that the military just gets deployed like that.
1: Yeah, it's like auto deploy. Mm-hmm.
2: Then
0: they bring up the
1: solution of activating the security treaty and the defense minister herself uh, pretty seriously delivered. She says that Japan and the SDF must move first. And even then, the only U.S. only the U.S. can provide support. Mm -hmm. so it's crystal clear explanation of how it works
0: Mm -hmm. they even discuss whether or not the americans can kill godzilla for them at that point but again it's shot down to say nope we have the the sdf has to act first
1: akasaka says that it's an animal it would be easier to stop it unlike an earthquake or a typhoon and that's more typical underestimation of godzilla Mm -hmm. at exactly 2053 Uh, There's this the reporter that's talking about the SDF being deployed for the first time, and a little Domino's pizza delivery uh, vehicle, this little cart sort of thing, drives down the street behind him. Really? I didn't catch that. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So apparently during the time of national emergency... I need my pizza. <laughs> get away from me. I don't want to hear about the bad news.
0: <laughs> Japanese, dominoes. Awesome. Japanese dominoes. Japanese dominoes has still gotta get that 30 minutes or less.
1: <laughs> Another timestamp for you. 2143, Joint Chief of Staff, Masao Zaizen, <laughs> who is played by who? Jun Kunimura. Mm-hmm. And he played Major Komuro in Final Wars. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's great seeing him again. After that, you hear that the Prime Minister is concerned about the elderly and infirm being left in the city after the evacuation, which was also a concern that people had during 311. Okuchi is battle-weary and indecisive, especially when it may cost lives or cause collateral damage. Very much a commentary on Prime Minister Khan during 311. Regardless, Okuchi is more concerned with his own reputation than the safety of the country. And he tries to eliminate all risks, which is just plain unrealistic. And Akasaka says, well, some collateral damage
1: is unavoidable. And he's being realistic, but at the same time, he somehow comes off cold like that. Yeah. In a dramatic reversal from the movie Avatar from (laughs) 2009, where it's, what was it? I didn't sign up for this.
0: <laughs> how often have we heard that?
1: We've heard it in a lot of other movies, too, besides uh-huh. that. But that's one of the biggest ones. The JSDF guys are talking and they mention Call of
0: Duty. This, this is what we signed up for.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's essentially how our military operates as well. Mm-hmm.
0: It's the first of several comments that we'll hear from JSDF personnel where they're pretty much saying, this is our job. We knew this, we knew this going in. I don't find this to be warmongering or nationalistic or anything like that. Then we get our momentous elevator scene. This is one of the best scenes in the whole movie. And it's... With one of the best lines in the whole movie.
1: Yeah, wishful thinking and armchair theories by the old imperial army in the last war led to three million Japanese lives lost. Beware of unfounded optimism. Yes. (laughs) And of course, this is a criticism uh, of the government and its unfounded optimism at this point in time. And it's also a young person's criticism of the Japanese Empire's militarist system, quite possibly. And this is indicative of how Japan has changed from a nationalist, militarist empire into a patriotic, civilian-run democracy. Now, our Komodokun version of Godzilla falls down, and our disaster has a tiny little lull. And I don't know what that signifies exactly, but I'm going to give it a shot. Maybe it's the point between when the tsunami was over, And then people started going into recovery mode. Then when it changes into Shinagawa-kun and Godzilla goes upright, in the 3.11 timeline, that's where the cooling system failure happened at Unit 1 at Fukushima. So our crisis has evolved again.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's also at that moment that we get the first use of a classic Bay theme. So it's very well placed. Yes, and indicative of the evolution mm-hmm. progressing, yeah. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's a track called Godzilla Comes Ashore from Godzilla 1954. So it's nostalgic, but it also works artistically as a callback to the original movie. And I think excluding an Afuka Bay theme from this movie would almost be like having a Star Wars film without the John Williams theme. And in this form, interestingly, Godzilla is about the same size as the Showa era Godzilla. So this is also a rare instance where we'll see Godzilla roar in this film. And he usually only does it in this movie when he's in pain. So it's obvious that these evolutions are excruciating. Then there's our scene with the helicopters
1: standing there doing nothing as Godzilla stands there and does nothing. (laughs) And it's like dark comedy. Very dark comedy. And just... Exasperating at mm-hmm. the same time. Like, I, I imagine everybody's like, kill it already. Fight. And instead, we're going through this dark comic opera of, of this chain of command crap.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of audience members were expecting a full fledged action sequence at that point. <laughs> so, again, their expectations are being subverted.
1: And then, what is it? Co- the slightest possibility of collateral damage. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, they even say, this could end the entire SDF if we. Mm-hmm. Has collateral they, damage.
0: Because mm-hmm. they see a couple of people that are still down Yeah, in the two area. evacuees. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Don't you know what Spock said the needs of the many, the many outweigh the, the needs, needs of the, of the few, few. Mm-hmm. or the one? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that really needs to apply here, but this is like bureaucratic freeze mm-hmm. at its best. Just total ineptitude. And then what happens? He heats up and then he runs into the water. Mm-hmm. To cool off. That's got to be a Fukushima reactor symbol right there.
0: Oh, I would not doubt it. them
1: starting to put water on mm-hmm. the reactor that's melting down mm-hmm. in order to try to mitigate the effects mm-hmm.
0: of it. So they missed their opportunity to have potentially killed Godzilla before he became a bigger problem because they were too busy having this twisted game of telephone <laughs> where they're going through this long chain of command. After that, we get our light jazz...
1: Yeah. Music, which is totally different. And everything's trying to go back to normal new Mm -hmm. day and all that. And this is like Sunday on the three eleven timeline. Friday was when the earthquake and tsunami happened. And then Sunday, the country started to go back to normal and they went into cleanup mode. And one big part of this movie is how the first attack happened. And then there was a lull where things started to go back to normal. It wasn't until the fifth day into the 311 disaster, which was Tuesday, that was doomsday. Though the cooling system failure on Unit 1 of Fukushima had started before that. This scene totally reflects this false sense of security that the Japanese felt. TV even went back to its normal schedule at the end of Day 2 after the earthquake. When Sunday came around, that was when the really bad news started coming in. And then Tuesday was the highest amount of gravity and crisis.
0: And then after that montage, we have a scene where Yaguchi and the other bureaucrats are touring the areas that have been damaged by Godzilla. And Yaguchi immediately blames the bureaucracy for what had happened. But that point arguably gets rendered moot later because the the military was ineffective against him. But you can't help but wonder... If they could have succeeded at that moment before Godzilla had evolved further, one wonders if the same could be asked about 311. Could some of that disaster have been mitigated, at least when it came to Fukushima, if they had responded faster? And it was at this point that Yoguchi says it took them two hours to respond to Godzilla's landing, which is faster than how the, government res- the Japanese government responded to 311, where it was more like 5 to 6 But in both instances, there were dire consequences for their indecision. Yaguchi is told by one of the
1: ministers in the scene, it couldn't be helped. Now, I've never read about a connection that I'm about to make here, but I'm, I'm just going off my instincts. But isn't that exactly what Emperor Showa said regarding the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki?
0: That is what he said. It couldn't be helped. We talked about that in the previous episode.
1: I bet money that that's what's going on here. Hmm. Yaguchi is told not to be smug, even though that's the truth. Yeah. But he's the one who's playing our main character from Akiru anyway. He's the one feeling the impact of the government's impotence. And he's the one who cares too at the end of that scene where yeah. he, yeah. And that, that scene just great. He,
0: he shows some respect.
1: Yeah. And he's the only one who does. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And this further illustrates just how much of a conformist Akasaka is. And it also illustrates just how much of a rebel that Yaguchi is. And for Americans like us who value individuality, we would see him as a hero. And so does this movie, but he's not viewed as such by the other characters. Yaguchi talks with
1: our political party guy. He's the nation first party (laughs) deputy chairman uh, Shuichi Izumi.
0: Yeah, and this is the only political party in this very political movie that's ever given a name. But this is a fictional party.
1: Yeah, it doesn't sound like anything necessarily. It seems just like a regular movie Mm stand-in sort of organization. And there have been lots of names of political parties like that in Mm -hmm. Japanese history anyway. But he's he's our sort of retrenched party official. He wants to be higher up in the party, and that's Mm -hmm. what he keeps asking. Yaguchi 4. Yeah, that's his thing. If he gets up later. but And then Izumi gets a, a higher rank later on in the movie, too.
0: And I love the part in, the, in their conversation because Yaguchi is telling him that he needs to find him some people who could find a solution to this problem. And he gets super informal and says, find me people with balls. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. At
1: 3124, uh, I just love that part where they put the camera on the chair and they start moving the chair
0: around. Mm-hmm. That's just great. Mm-hmm yet another example of Anno's unusual cinematography.
1: Then we have our flat organization that has been put together.
0: Mm-hmm. I love how the guy introduces this. <laughs> Calling over, so you're nerds, geeks, troublemakers, and general, what was it? General pains, pains in, in the, the bureaucracy. bureaucracy. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yep. I love it. <laughs> so
1: status isn't in the way, nor is chain of command. And this is totally going against Japanese instincts mm-hmm. right here. And it's, chaotic to some people to have an organization like this. This kind of organization, this flat organization where everybody gets to put their viewpoints out, isn't this kind of more American? Oh, yeah. Yeah. we are well, actually it, doing a more American thing here.
0: Well, it kind of plays into both cultures in a way because they're doing this independently separate from the bureaucracy, but it's still very... And you know, there's they don't care about rank and seniority or any of that stuff. But it's still a group effort. It's still very communal. Iguchi's band of rebels here are not unlike the Fukushima 50, which were a group of TEPCO employees who heroically defied authorities in an effort to halt the meltdown during 3:11. Workers from all over the country came to assist with them, including firefighters and JSDF personnel, and the, their number eventually grew to. 580 and then to over a thousand the music that plays during this scene was uh, brought some nostalgic delight to me <laughs> because it's essentially a remake of an ava th- uh, of a neon genesis evangelion theme called decisive battle it was played during the mission briefings on the show and it's played during the yaguchi rebel meetings here it helps to make these scenes more exciting than they probably normally would be we've all been in enough boring meetings to Couple that with the fast-talking characters in this so-called boring talkie movie is quite dynamic. This is actually one of the
1: most exciting moments with meetings, mm-hmm. actually, with the music and the very quick cuts. Our health ministry rebel says that the U.S. took the remaining samples of the Godzilla blood and pressured to have the rest burned. Now, this is pointing out how the U.S. is involved And they're pursuing their own interests without telling Japan what's really going on yet. It highlights how the interests of the U.S. and the interests of Japan aren't always the same. In the theater, I actually laughed at nearly all the parts where they mentioned the United States. To me, it's just (laughs) funny because it's just...
0: It's not meant to be taken that seriously.
1: (laughs) But once you put yourselves in their shoes, it's actually pretty funny. And you have to remember it's a satire. It's the Japanese people saying what they want to say, only it's complex. I'd rather have them say what's on their mind. That's frequently what Americans do. Regarding the overall picture of this cover-up, the 311 context for that word is the cover-up of what? The meltdowns. Mm -hmm. That's something that's not lost on the domestic audience. Perhaps having the U.S. do the cover-up was to symbolize the various scandals in Japanese history, such as the CIA funding of the Liberal Democratic Party, or the, the defense contractor bribery scandal... But I'm not really sold on that. Perhaps moving the cover-up to the U.S. made the story more interesting. But it could be a reason to take the cover-up out of the Japanese context. Hmm. So they were able to put that to another place while still being able to talk about a Mm cover-up. On day three, which was March 14th, the employees at Fukushima Daiichi were told not to describe the events that occurred as a meltdown. Clearly there was a cover-up and at least, at the very least, a delay of getting the information out that you should have. Then on day five, Khan visited TEPCO, the power company, and said their whole company is going to go down in flames if they abandon the power plant, pleading with them to not let it get any worse. TEPCO did not even admit fault until December 12, 2012. (sighs) A TEPCO manager actually said no to a planned project that would have made a much higher tsunami wall for the Fukushima plant, which yeah. that made me flash back to Katrina immediately with the levees.
0: Yeah, because 311 was essentially Hurricane Katrina on steroids with a nuclear component. Yeah, only nuclear. Yeah. Uh, that, that thing about the tsunami wall, that was a recent bit of news that just came out because they just had some testimony in a court case about that.
1: Yes, which the court case is really come in really uh, snowballed. After all of these events, the part of the movie with them connecting the radioactivity to Godzilla is interesting. It shows a U.S. carrier leaving Yokosuka, Mm -hmm. which is where the 7th Fleet is stationed, and it's because they detected radiation. Mm -hmm. During Operation Tomodachi, which was on behalf of the U.S. Forces Japan and the U.S. military, the USS Ronald Reagan did have radioactive material on it during that operation. Hmm. So there's that. But when 311 was actually going on, they kept telling people to evacuate further as the situation got worse. But the U.S. told Americans in Japan to evacuate further away than what the Japanese government was telling the Japanese to go
0: to. And during all of this, yeah, you have that, that one guy, one of the younger guys in in our rebels here who has his little eureka moment. He just kind of... Freaks out, starts flailing his arms, and he spins around in his chair. He's carrying the laptop around. Yeah, he's like,
1: oh my gosh, I figured it out, he figured it out. <laughs> I like that
0: part. It's great. I kind of wonder if, in some ways, this these rebels, these nerds, these outcasts are kind of indicative of the Godzilla fandom. You know, all these very excitable...
1: Well, it makes either, me wonder.
0: Yeah, I, I, very intelligent, but uh, either very excitable or very dour sort of people. Because you know our Japanese daria is like that. She's not like she's not exuberant like this fella.
1: Then we get our social media um, aspect to this, and mm-hmm. it's about Japanese Twitter. Yes, and it's about the Geiger counters detecting radioactivity, and everybody's asking, you know, "What's going on? What's going on?" And this obviously connects back to 311 with everybody figuring out what was going on with Fukushima Daiichi. And, and how things are getting worse. At thirty four, thirty five, there's a, a on the Twitter page there. The avatar is an Evangelion character, Oscar Langley Soryu. Yeah, <laughs> and her handle is translated as "Stupid Shinji."
0: <laughs> that's another. That's a, that's another character from uh, from the Genesis Evangelion, Shinji Akari. She always called him an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, so there's that little... Uh... No, she said, what are you, stupid? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a nice little Easter egg for Ano's fans. Akasaka
1: says, it's not enough of a spike to warrant evacuation.
0: Aha. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, that sounds pretty inhuman, even though he's actually factually going by what you know the government sets as limits and stuff like that. But still, it sounds so bad. And Yaguchi... Says, well, it's still a matter of radioactivity. I was gonna say it's, it's like,
0: radiation. <laughs> yeah, even
1: a little radiation's bad, let alone a lot. So it's just kind of cold. I'd and say.
0: again, conforming to the system.
1: I laughed pretty hard about the complaint about unilateral requests. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I just I thought that was funny. I'm not bothered by this statement because it's in the Japanese context. is It's funny, and this is a satire. Americans are so used to doing whatever we want and, and telling others what to do, and uh, the, uh, I, I I liked it. I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm.
0: Even though it is funny, that line does speak to how the Japanese feel that there is a an imbalance in the alliance. I will say that. Although some people have taken the line to be anti-American, but again, they're missing the
1: humor in it. Well, it's, it's the same thing with the 1984 movie. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a redo of that. Then we get our first Keiko Patterson scene. Yes. She's the
0: personification of the satire of the U.S.-Japan relationship. And she is an important character in this movie, and she has a strong presence throughout the rest of it. And she's introduced 36 minutes in. I was shocked by that when I time-stamped it. That's a long time to introduce a main character. So out of the gate, we
1: already talked about her her arc. And Mm -hmm. so now she's at the beginning of her arc here. And so she says that the U.S. and Japan should work together exclusively, win-win. She's pressuring Japan not to go to anyone else and to protect American secrecy. She's out of touch, sort of immature acting. She has the jacket on that just Mm -hmm. really completes the look Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, you know, just sort of flippant about Mm -hmm. what's really happening.
0: She starts talking about how she just... Uh, got there from a party. and She didn't have time to change. She's not realizing the gravity of the situation. Then
1: she asks, where's Zara? Mm-hmm. And that is upscale shopping. And I have not heard this from anywhere else, but I'm just going to throw this out there. I believe this is a connection to when Condoleezza Rice went shopping for expensive shoes in New York city after hurricane katrina made landfall and the flooding happened it wouldn't surprise me that is what happened so you know look you can go look up that story but if this is a relation to that which i think it is that is a very smart relation to make is. back to katrina and maybe i wouldn't have known this if i hadn't been in a you know seminar class for my master's thesis for about, about katrina but uh, i know i've I knew this happened when it back when it did, because I remember mm-hmm. seeing the story. The accusation against Condi Rice was that Rome was burning, and there she was doing upscale shopping. That's what the connection here is. I wonder if the American in this movie was a European-American instead of a Japanese-American. I wonder how the movie would look. It would sort of change a lot of things, wouldn't it?
0: It would, and I I don't think it would have had as much impact. The fact is, is like that she's
1: a Japanese-American character. It might make it easier for maybe both Americans and Japanese to get through the story. Maybe. I just wondered about that. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. The idea that she has Japanese family. Yeah. Is interesting.
0: Kyoko is an absolutely wonderful character. (laughs) She's, she's very well realized, very well written, and she has probably the best overall arc in this because she's the character who changes the most throughout, and she's a nice contrast with Ogashira, I would say. Where Ogashira, you know, because Kayoko is uh, she's pushy, she's very attractive, she's ambitious. You don't get the sense that that's how Ogashira is at all.
1: Yeah, regarding Satomi Ishihara, the actress who plays Kayoko, I think she's very good looking, first of all. Mm-hmm. That was definitely the right move. Her, her, the criticisms of her English are, are sort of harsh. I'm not going to make excuses, but it just doesn't seem that big of a deal to me. Also, her acting is pretty good. She plays she an Amer- in the Titan movies.
0: Yeah. She plays an American very well. And I know when it comes to the English, it—I will admit—when I will admit when I first watched it as a native English speaker, it threw me off because her accent is still pretty thick. But for what I understand, she worked really, really hard. To get those English lines down, so much so, she got to the, she she got so frustrated to the point of crying because she was trying so hard. And we heard from Higuchi where they said to them they thought her English was great. <laughs> they just didn't know any better. Well, her English
1: is better than my Japanese.
0: Well, sure, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. Now we understand how what it's like to have the shoe on the other foot. You know, I'm sure Japanese people laugh at any American actors trying to speak Japanese in a movie. <laughs> It can happen and has happened, I'm sure. We have a scene between Akasaka and Azuma right after that where they're talking about Keoko. They're reading a dossier on her and one of them says, America admirably values performance over age. It's an interesting little commentary. I take it as a compliment. because <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound bad. No, it's a contrast with the Japanese system. They're illustrating differences in the systems and in the cultures. And she had potent political connections because of her father. In the same scene, Akasaka mentions she's the political type, like Yaguchi. That's a pretty big slam against our protagonist. Yeah. And it's probably his snide little way of saying she's a rebel, just like him. And we don't go for rebels in this system. And that's
1: what wanting to stand out gets you, is people talk behind your back and say that you have political aspirations and you don't know your place, blah, blah, blah. This is a lot of Ikiru, again, Mm -hmm. showing up. It's funny with the whole naming thing where they say, well, the the Americans named it, now we know what to call it.
0: Yeah. It's clearly
1: (laughs) just being funny.
2: Uh
1: I actually laughed at that because that's pretty much what happens a lot of the time.
2: Mm
0: Mm-hmm. In the next scene, Kyoko is talking with Yaguchi, and she makes the statement, my grandma's country works fast, <laughs> which I just take to be hilarious. It's, it's so ironic because this whole movie is about how the Japanese political system doesn't work fast, that it's bogged down by bureaucracy, <laughs> and it speaks to her ignorance. She just She doesn't realize how things work over here in Japan. And the other
1: thing is, is that this is something the bureaucracy already knows how to do Mm -hmm. instead of something that's completely new and evolving crisis.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's just so funny because I'm sure she's dealt with American bureaucracy. So now she's subtly thinking, oh, the Japanese bureaucracy must work faster.
1: (laughs) Yes. Kind of ironic. At 3954, we get our first media scene. And I'm pretty sure this is a satire of how the government sort of gets along with the media. Mm hmm. The government gives this reporter the information, and then they say when to release it. So it seems like the government is calling the shots, and the media, you know, they're currying favor from mm-hmm. some of the news outlets. Getting on to the naming of Godzilla, it's God because why? It's, it's violent. violent, yeah. Another meaning for Shin is God. And we get our Odo Island reference. Mm-hmm. Then Kayoko starts, sort of brags about who makes the decisions in the US. Mm-hmm. She says, It's for the president to decide. And then she says, Who speaks for you? Who's yeah. the one in, who makes who,
0: decisions in your country? Yeah.
1: Who's the one who acts in that capacity here? Who does the buck stop with?
0: Mm-hmm. Seems a little bit jerkish, to be honest. But it's also, again, probably speaking to her ignorance.
1: And then Kayoko says, I'm bad at Japanese honorifics.
0: Can we go informal?
1: And she leans towards Yaguchi, and as she says that, she totally, like, bumps in front of Hiromi. hmm And Hiromi reacts like, hey, a l- <laughs> little bit. It seems like she was just being pushy mm-hmm. again. The protesters at the prime minister's residence, the Kante, they're typical of the strange kinds of demonstrations that happen from time to time as sort of like a connection to the idol cults. Mm-hmm. Since they yeah. seem to be out of touch considering what Godzilla really is. hmm I'm wondering also if this is the movie making a point that this is not the kind of movie where you cheer for Godzilla. Yeah. is because the audience is like, why are they doing that? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the movie saying maybe you shouldn't either.
0: Yeah. But I have to admit, it's a fascinating idea, this. The idea of some sort of a cult springing up to, in, to worship a kaiju. I could definitely see something like that happening in real life. Oh, yeah. It's one of the ideas that I'm glad it was presented, though there is a part of me that kind of wishes it had been developed a little bit more, but it would have distracted from the story. Later, we get our nice little recuperation scene. It gives our characters and the audience a nice little breather. It sort of solidifies
1: them as the Fukushima 50 as well. They're making Mm -hmm. this sacrifice, working together. Building camaraderie. Mm Mm-hmm. And Yaguchi says there's hope for this country yet, mm-hmm. which that's the big takeaway from this. And they're they're volunteering; they're mm-hmm. they're the ones who are making and con- making sacrifices and contributing.
0: Mm-hmm. And we have the the nice little joke where Okashira doesn't even look at him; she just says, "Oh, by the way, your shirt's a bit rank. Yeah, you could stand a shower." Yeah, <laughs> communicating to us that they've been working long hours, and <laughs> it can't. Stop for anything, can barely you know stop to eat at this point. Probably aren't getting much sleep because then you know we, Yoguchi's taking a nap after that with a new shirt. Yeah, sitting there, and I would just like to say the 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 older scientist guy who's in there, he always has the towel around his neck, the pink I, towel. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, I, I love the that little idio that little nice character idiosyncrasy <laughs> with the towel. There's no explanation for it at all. It's just it's just what he does. It's his quirk. But then, after a little break scene, then stuff really starts happening. Oh, Because Godzilla yeah. appears. <laughs> the final form, finally. 47 minutes in, we get Godzilla's final form, the one that we saw in all the trailers. And it looks stunning. It's quite sudden when we get it. it
1: was all... I just remember him getting the shirt. Yeah. That, that's when we were all supposed to get ready. Mm-hmm. It's him getting his new white shirt that's on his desk. Mm-hmm. We have some amazing shots of, of Shin Godzilla making his way towards Tokyo, and this is kind of like when Fukushima Daiichi issues start coming to a head, and the government realizes it, and then everybody panics. Prime Minister Khan, uh, he goes to TEPCO's headquarters, tells them not to abandon the nuclear plant or else. <laughs> At this point, the, the military tactics start taking more of a precedence over emergency management. The mission is to keep Godzilla away from Tokyo. Mm -hmm. The location of his appearance, if you're still looking at the map, uh, that would be Kamakura. He's in the water at first. Mm -hmm. There's this island behind him and you can tell, right, there's that little sort of inlet part of the ocean there where Kamakura City is. And then behind Godzilla, you can see this island and if you could look on the map, you see the island.
0: This scene is absolutely spectacular. It's one of the... I would say one of the most perfect Godzilla entrances I've seen. We have yet another classic Afuka Bay theme announcing his arrival, so it, it, which is wonderful. And you, you talked about how, you know, how well shot this is. There's a lot of ground level stuff. So you, you really feel small when you, I mean, you really get to see just how gigantic, how tall this Godzilla is. So you really feel minuscule as the audience. And I wonder a little bit if this may have been inspired a bit by 2014, because there's a lot of ground level stuff in there. Because I, I remember Higuchi at G Fest last year saying that he was he liked the Godzilla 2014. And these are the sorts of shots that would have been difficult to do with a suit, but the CGI allows them to do so much more.
1: That's what I was going to say. They have CGI now, so they can do all that. Mm-hmm. The close-up of the face, too, is pretty yes. nice and scary.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is something that both higuchi and ano were promising people in the lead-up to this film's release they were saying we are going to give you the scariest godzilla ever and i think honestly that they succeeded with this the, the design for this is absolutely terrifying the dead unblinking eyes the scarred glowing skin which actually makes him look a little bit like burning godzilla from Destroya. the lipless mouth and the bared uneven teeth Every time I see a, a shot of this Godzilla particularly the face it, it's it's horrifying it's nightmare fuel <laughs> but the, these all these design elements were meant to hearken back to the original film uh, particularly with the eyes and the skin and the other interesting thing about this is I do wonder if there's a little bit of one upmanship going on here because the 2014 Godzilla was the tallest incarnation of Godzilla to date uh, up to that point and this one, Shin Godzilla, is slightly taller than that.
1: <laughs> this sort of seems like a a one time thing for this Godzilla look, Mm-hmm. because partially this whole thing is a connection to three eleven yeah at forty seven minutes forty four seconds in th- there's a voice on the emergency alert announcement. Mhm that's Hideki Ano's voice,
0: yes, I remember reading that, yeah, which is not unusual. He's done a he's actually done some voice acting in the past. He was. He was in The Wind Rises, if you watch it in Japanese. It's at this point with this arrival that the prime minister, in a contrast to the previous scene when we had our standoff, he actually makes a quick decision. They ask him for permission to fire and he makes no hesitation to say yes. Which is good. Yeah. Problem is, is that it doesn't go well. That's the irony of it. Which is bad.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Godzilla looks really incredible with all the SDF helicopters flying towards him. Yes. Our new scary, ominous Godzilla looks Mm -hmm. really good. It's one of my favorite shots, actually, in the entire movie. It is a good one. Then we arrive at the Maruko Bridge, and that is Highway 2, which is the Nakahara Highway, which is right there in the city of Nakahara. And those are the buildings, the taller buildings that he's around at this point. Mm -hmm. This kind of reads like one of our part ones. Yeah, they start with smaller bullets. Then they <laughs> go to larger bullets and then they go to missiles. Then they go to tanks and then ground missile launchers and then ground rocket launchers yeah, it's
0: escalation and then
1: <laughs> fighter planes, dropping bombs and through this whole succession here. And this sounds a lot like a normal Godzilla movie to me.
0: Yes. Yeah, it definitely does. Only it's only it's like hyper
1: realistic this time.
0: Yeah. This whole sequence is absolutely spectacular. <laughs> I love Sp-
1: spectacular in its failure. Yeah, well, and I, the failure of the uh, JSDF forces. Yeah, well, I
0: I, lo- I, I love the shot when they uh, when they're firing all of those bullets at. I don't think they even say it was sixteen thousand rounds, and it doesn't leave a scratch, yeah. and they just all bounce right off. I love the the little detail. Again, I don't think they could have done that without. CGI, You actually seeing all the, the individual bullets just bouncing right and off. And of
1: having him. things explode right in front of his face.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't
1: really want to be up for that if I was in a suit and have stuff explode that largely, so.
0: <laughs> Being pelted with all the Roman candles. Yeah. <laughs> Around 54, 54, you get one of my, my favorite shots in this whole movie. This is when they've fired the missiles on Godzilla, and he is engulfed in a, in a cloud of smoke and then he emerges right out of it. And the music that's playing on all that it, it's cued perfectly as he comes out and it's just like oh my god. And then everybody's <laughs> shocked. Yeah, it's like holy crap he's still alive. It's like oh he's 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 terrifying <laughs> as I've been saying. Yeah, it's a good reveal of the mm-hmm. invincibility factor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then not long after that the you talked about the the fighter just dropping bombs. Watching that because they they show uh, a first person perspective as as the bombs are dropped. From the from the airplanes. And it gave me flashbacks to when I was a kid watching news footage of Desert Storm. Because that was the first time I had seen anything like that.
1: Yeah, or drone footage. Mm-hmm. I, I remember um, also
0: Kosovo. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. But I think the best part of this entire action sequence is the bridge. For me, that moment is when everything just comes together. The effects, the cinematography, the music—I I love that scene every time I see it. It's Just the spectacle of it and the excitement, the the fear that it generates. You know, watching these tanks just just trying to get out of the way. And what
1: makes it—yeah, it's, it's literally the JSDF running away. Yeah, we've seen this before too yep. in Godzilla movies, the especially the sixties, seventies sort of era.
0: Mm-hmm. What makes this even more interesting is that this wasn't. An intentional move by Godzilla. It just looks like something that just happened. He was plowing through the through the bridge, and this is the, the result of it. He's not intentionally going after the JSDF. It's him breaking through. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's how this Godzilla is presented. He's indifferent toward everything, unless it hurts him, which I know for some fans, they didn't necessarily like, but it fits in with what this movie is trying to do. Definitely. And then after all, All of this happens. We get the second statement, outright statement, from somebody in the military in this film where they say it's their job to protect the people. Then at 5940 is
1: my favorite music in the entire movie starting, which is uh, Defeat is No Option.
0: That is a great track. And then, for the first time in a Godzilla movie, the U.S.-Japan alliance is enacted. And this is because, one,
1: the military failed. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Which they said that that would have the JSF would have to respond first before they could ask for aid. And two, this is what happened in three eleven
1: too, was that the alliance was activated uh, for aid.
0: What I find interesting about this scene is Japan asks for military aid, and the U.S. wastes no time sending the stealth bombers. In fact, there even seems to be an implication that they had launched the bombers before they sent the request. So this was a preemptive deployment. But it certainly contrasts with what we've been seeing with the Japanese government, because they've been terribly inefficient in, re- in responding to this crisis.
1: The fact that they're already in the air, it might be an implication also as to the fact that the United States already knew what was probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as Godzilla appeared, they might have had the bombers launch at that point.
0: Yeah, because we've, it's already been established in the film that they knew stuff. Yeah. About Godzilla.
1: So they knew that they were already going to be requested. There's a very interesting point where this guy is watching all of this play out on television and he's at this TV camera store. sort like of place. A, Like
0: a big box Best Buy sort of looking place. thing.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is how a lot of people experience 311 was at home watching it on TV or watching it at work too Mm -hmm. and they see it happen on tv and and depending on how long the crisis lasts the tv has constant warnings and new developments that would be really taxing on one's psyche and they're stuck helpless watching all of this happen
0: reminds me of 9-11 remember when that there was just constant news coverage
1: and because it was located just in one place on television was how people experienced it yeah a few seconds later, you see one of the TVs in the store there that's on a different channel. And it's showing an anime which is called Ochibisan, which is created by Hideki Ano's wife. <laughs> There's a connection also to 311 because one network did show programming that was not breaking news. That channel may have been sort of therapeutic mm-hmm. as a way to just see something else and feel some normalcy. The alert noise, specifically regarding 311, that noise went off so often that it became ubiquitous mm-hmm. and stress-inducing. You know, every time you hear oh, it, I bet. <laughs> it, it's going to be something else. I bet this country would be the same if a big crisis like that happened, too, of just the, the breaking news coming across. And it's like, oh, no, what's next? Maybe we'd even have one channel here that would just show, like, patriotic programming or something. <laughs> like on the uh, Clamp Cable Network on <laughs> Gremlins 2. It, 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 you remember that? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that reminds me how there was a there was a local Fox affiliate the Saturday after 9-11. They, and I don't know if this was what they had originally planned or not, but they showed the movie The Delta Force, which was this mid-80s action movie starring Lee Marvin and Chuck Norris that was actually about Islamic terrorists hijacking an airplane and then the uh, Lee Marvin and Chuck Norris were going in to, to save all the hostages, which was, that's what was different. It, uh, they weren't crashing it into a building. They were just holding it for ransom.
1: Specifically at one hour, two minutes and 37 seconds in, that's our last moment where Yaguchi talks to Azuma. Mm-hmm. Because Azuma is killed. Yes. In Godzilla's attack. And so this is the second time around when you're seeing this movie, it's kind of an emotional moment because, because they're sort of breaking apart here to escape and one of them doesn't make it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's around this time that I I realized in watching this in preparation for the podcast that I am actively rooting against Godzilla, which is very different from the other films that we've been covering lately. Like say Godzilla versus Megaguirus, where you get to have your cake and eat it too. We can root for the characters who are trying to defeat Godzilla but also kind of rooting for Godzilla at the same time. Or at least not against Godzilla, yeah. Yeah. The gravity really starts to come home at this point. Godzilla
1: causes blackouts in Tokyo, which is obviously a huge thing that people had to deal with in the 311 disaster. And there was panic in the subways. That obviously is, a, is also a callback to 311. The scenes of people fleeing to the subways and then panicking, and then the power go out, that part... That's really terrible imagery from 311. At one hour, one minute and 40 seconds in, we get one of my favorite visions of Godzilla in the whole movie. It looks incredible. The sense of awe is really just right there. Mm-hmm. During the evacuation of the prime minister's residence, is very hectic. And on day five of the 311 disaster, the off-site center, which was the emergency office that was near the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, That headquarters had to be moved to Fukushima City, Mm. which is quite farther away. That's the only parallel I can think of to this, but it's a pretty good one.
0: Yes. And speaking of the prime minister, it's at this point that they're telling him that he needs to evacuate with everybody else, but he refuses to. He wants to stay because he thinks it's his duty to remain there so he can help coordinate all of the operations that are going on. It's admirable, but again, ironically, it ends up proving to be his downfall. However, it does show that despite his incompetence in this crisis, I do think he means well. It's just an
1: inopportune time to get all heroic. I can imagine that quite a few people in the audience were thinking, no way, get out of there. Yaguchi tells him, it's your responsibility to lead, and so you should go someplace you can safely do that. Yeah. Which,
0: that's what I agreed with, was him. Yeah, I definitely do agree with Yaguchi in this. You don't want the leader of your country this Close to a volatile situation.
1: Which is why they're evacuating the Prime Minister's residence in the first place. Yeah. Regarding the whole idea that the United States bombed Godzilla and that's what set him off, I'm not really sure that's what the point of this is. No. To me, it seems that this is all about the military option failing Mm -hmm. and continuing to fail. And the coordination of Japan and the U.S. militarily is not good enough to solve the problem because what are you going to have take place otherwise this fits because in because where does plan b come in if plan a works
0: yeah and this fits in with with the escalation that we were seeing before the you're starting with the smaller bullets the bigger bolts all the way up to yeah as part of the progression dropping bombs on which it. is
1: what would happen in a realistic situation
0: yeah so they just took the next step up which was Bring in, but they didn't have the next step up from that, so they had to mm. get U.S. assistance for it. It's just being realistic.
1: But then again, if Japan just kept attacking him, eventually you would get to a breaking point. Then anyway,
0: yeah, the same thing would have happened.
1: Wouldn't so it really doesn't matter who's doing it. It's just yeah. something that has to take place. There really isn't another option when you're making a movie like this to to do anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't believe there's any particular symbolism also going on with the fact that the B-2 bombers that attack Godzilla are from the 509th Operations Group, which is the descendant of the same unit that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was also the 509th Operations Group. Mm -hmm. In fact, 19 of the 20 B-2 bombers in the U.S. Air Force are assigned to that operations group in Whiteman Air Force Base, and we're the ones with the bigger bombs, too. And so this movie is about realistic as possible. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some viewers of the movie saw that it was the 509th operations group and th- and they thought, oh, I think I know how this is going to go. <laughs> Did you notice that they cheered when the bombs actually landed on Godzilla and and all the blood was splattering? Yeah.
0: Yeah, <laughs> The U.S. draws first blood on Godzilla in this movie, which is actually a little bit exciting. So I'm not surprised that the Japanese characters would be cheering. But also, it's a nice nod to the fact that they're appreciative of the help that they're getting.
1: And maybe even though that it's not the JSDF, it does parallel the first movie when the JSDF is being cheered. Yes. By yeah. Then we finally get our destruction of Tokyo scene. It's pretty much the meltdowns of Fukushima units one, two and three. Yeah. Prime Minister Khan visited the Fukushima Daiichi plant 16 hours after the accident. And this may relate to the Prime Minister somehow, because when Prime Minister Khan, at only 16 hours into this whole thing, went to Fukushima Daiichi to observe things, he was in a helicopter. And then our Prime Minister gets killed in a helicopter. Mm. Interesting that at 1 hour 6 minutes and 24 seconds, there's the Ginza 4th Street intersection in Chua Ward. With the Waco Clock Tower, this building was the PX, a post-exchange under the occupation. And the area around it was where a lot of SCAP was headquartered. Oh. The Clock Tower is an iconic building and is completely destroyed. It was also used as a shopping center. The music's incredible. Look up the English lyrics if you don't know them. They're very good English lyrics going uh, with
0: this. Yes, it's called Who Will Know? And what's interesting is that you could argue that this is a a counterpoint to Persecution of the Masses. The lyrics in this are actually written from Godzilla's perspective, where Persecution of the Masses was written from the people's perspective. This song has a female lead, whereas Persecution of the Masses had male leads. Defeat is no option also had male singers, yeah. You mentioned the lyrics are interesting. They are. uh, It presents... Godzilla is a tragic figure enveloped by emptiness. It's about the only time I can think of where any sort of sympathy is extended to Godzilla
1: in this film. It's kind of like Godzilla going through torture.
0: Yeah, it's it's really
1: sad. When I was in the theater the first time this came out, the reaction was more of just awe. Yeah. Because I don't think they knew what was going to happen, but also the, the movie was leading up to something really bad happening right
0: there but something really big um, too
1: yeah and i was just like oh no i know what's gonna happen now
0: yeah my initial reaction to it was it was was very interesting the first thing i noticed was oh he can distend his jaw like a snake but that didn't last very long because then after that i thought oh no i know what's coming and then just how the whole thing plays out because i knew it it was atomic ray time but i didn't know how it was going to be done and it's very different in this one yeah, the way it happens. Yeah, yeah, he just belches out all of this gas that seems to fill the entire city, and then he ignites it. Mm-hmm. And then it coalesces into a laser beam. Did not see that coming. but it seems That's like- the coolest part. Yeah, but it is the coolest part. And I wasn't surprised at all that they did that. And then there were the back lasers. That was a little unexpected. But it even- made sense. It totally made sense. It
1: was unexpected. I liked the fact that it was unexpected.
0: Yeah, it it was unexpected, but I also thought to myself, this is the sort of stuff Anno does. Yeah. I've seen Evangelion. I know this was not strange. It might have been a little out of the ordinary for Godzilla, but this is Anno, so it, it fit in perfectly. What's interesting, though, is with Godzilla 2014, the use of the atomic ray is... Meant to be a fist-pumping moment. It's exciting. You've been waiting the entire movie to see this happen. And now Godzilla's getting the upper hand against his opponents. In this, it's horrifying. Very much so. Yeah. So it's it's a huge contrast. It's not a, not just with 2014, but most of the other Godzilla movies yeah. that we've seen. It's yeah, like, just that's about any is. other time. Yeah. The original's also rather scary, though. Yes. Yes. But uh, the imagery in this whole sequence is absolutely spectacular. The seeing Godzilla glowing purple when this is all going on and the, that shot toward the end of the whole thing, when he's silhouetted against the flames and you can see the, the parts of his skin glowing purple. It's one of the best shots in the entire movie. I absolutely love it. Yeah. And then that shot of Tokyo in flames from what I read, That had been inspired by aerial photographs taken of Fukushima because during the meltdown, they had several hydrogen explosions.
1: It also calls back to the firebombing of Tokyo in the war, obviously. Mm -hmm. The scenes after our destruction of Tokyo part are an aftermath of the meltdown, in a way. Radioactivity is high, which it was, including agricultural products that had to be stopped before being exported. People had to stay in their homes which people in areas around the radioactive cloud were told to do. They also distributed iodine tablets Mm -hmm. in 311. Response teams mobilized, which they were. Lots of evacuees, which there were, including a lot of residents from areas in northern Japan that were fleeing south. There were stores that were running out of food, water, and gasoline during the crisis. Some areas were uninhabitable, which totally is happening right now still. The HQ for disaster management had to be moved farther away to Tachikawa, northwest of the city center, in the movie, which also happened with regarding moving to Fukushima in 311. In this movie, the plume of radiation goes out to sea, but in 311, the radioactive material went sort of west and northwest. Mm. Godzilla going dormant is interesting, and it's all about... The symbolism to 311, mm-hmm. the decommissioning for Fukushima is, is going to take decades. Mm-hmm. You're doing a thing where you're saying the problem is still there. Yeah. Which it is. And so that's what's going on here. It's pretty easy. I don't know. W- what else is he supposed to do exactly? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think the criticism of this are a little funny. He's not going to fight another monster. No. No. And we. If this was that kind of a Godzilla movie, probably what would happen? Another monster would arrive now. Yeah. Because we've had our destruction of Tokyo Sea. Now we got to have something else appear. But this isn't that kind of a Godzilla movie. This is like 54 and 1984. And so this is what's going on.
0: It also plays into the plot. It gives our heroes time to figure out what they need to do. And him going inactive helps to lead them to their solution.
1: Right. This is where our ticking time clock starts, too, because they, not right now, but effectively it starts now. Mm -hmm. But uh, later on, that's when the actual time starts counting down. And that gives us the impetus for the plot to continue and for Mm -hmm. Plan B to take place. Then later, Yuguchi has his own meltdown. Yeah, (laughs) He's yelling at people not to go to pieces when, in fact, he's the one who's doing that. Yeah. And I imagine the Fukushima 50... And the guy in charge of the Fukushima plant, they had to have had a moment like this.
0: How could they not? <laughs> I love the part where uh, his his buddy comes up to him and just says, Yaguchi, and just puts a bottle of water, water right you know. in his chest. Doesn't even have to say anything after that. <laughs> He's just him, calm down, have some water.
1: <laughs> in the scene after that, they take notice that the man who becomes prime minister became a minister only because of loyalty in the first place. So again, a leader is put forward who lacks in skill and is yet another cog in the machine of conformity. Yeah. And there isn't really much good said about this prime minister either.
0: I, I also feel like his age and his seniority probably factored into him becoming prime minister as well, because there's discussion later where someone asked Yoguchi, well, why didn't you try to get the position. He said, yeah, maybe in 10 years. So it's almost like they're acknowledging he might actually be better qualified to be prime minister than this guy. The film communicates to us very quickly that this guy's not cut up for this job because he makes that little comment about how all my noodles are soggy. So he's obviously preoccupied with unimportant things.
1: Yeah, they might as well have a sign right next to him that says this guy is out of touch. Yeah. Yeah. He was the agriculture minister. And so that... The designated survivor. Yes, he was the designated survivor, which that subtitle was only on the screen for a little bit, and it was sort of mixed in with other things. And I don't know if everybody even catches that part. The fact that he's old also points to the fact that he might be stuck in old ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah, especially since all of our rebellious heroes are the young people.
1: Except the one guy. Except the one guy. With the pink towel. Yeah. But still... (laughs) At one eleven exactly, there's some disturbing movement near Tsushima Island being mentioned. But when I Google Earth that, it was way over by South Korea, so I have absolutely no idea what on Earth they're talking about here. (laughs) Oh, well. At one twelve forty one, we have peak satire with the subtitles. This is where we get our super long title for Rando Yaguchi. And it's at the same time that he says, No, I'm here to take the fall, if needed.
0: In the same scene, our characters see Akasaka on television doing a press conference, and our party guy Izumi says, a politician needs strategy and luck. And I think it was his way of taking a stab at Akasaka being an opportunist. It reminded me of the old political idiom, never let a crisis go to waste, and Akasaka is using this opportunity to move up in the political world.
1: Yes, it's because he retreated to a U.S. Air Force base, too. That part of it, they're talking about a whole lot about government positions and moving up. It sounded a lot like Ikiru again. Yep. It seemed to me a little bit that they were sort of lamenting that Akasaka didn't get vaporized. (laughs) Yeah. Couldn't help
0: but think that. Yeah. I'm sure the audience was feeling the same way. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, maybe the audience is thinking that.
1: Yeah. Then Yaguchi says that he became a politician because of the simplicity friend or foe, and that's, mm-hmm. that's really yeah.
0: ironic. Yeah, because Izumi says, if you don't like politicians, why'd you become one?
1: Yeah, but given how complicated all of this stuff is, mm-hmm. it's funny how he says, oh, it's just friend or foe.
0: Yeah, and I think it speaks to the oversimplification, the unnuanced approach to this. Oh, if you're not part of our political party, you're automatically the enemy. You're not there to help me. So obviously Yuguchi is aware of this, and he doesn't like it. However, this is the vocation he chose, and he does what he can to work within the system. But at the very least, he knows who's for him and against him, even if it's for asinine reasons. After that, we get a lot of
1: plot, plot, plot parts of the movie. They're putting together plan B and everything.
0: Mm-hmm. And that includes the, our first of two inspirational speeches from Yaguchi. In the first one, th- he's talking with his band of rebels and telling them to continue to work hard to save their countrymen. An hour and 15
1: minutes in, there's a part where our new PM and Keiko Patterson are meeting. And she talks about the movement centered on China and Russia, the two countries that are kind of hostile to the U.S. and kind of hostile to Japan, mm-hmm. want to take decision-making power from Japan and give it to international organizations which by that, I'm guessing the UN, even though she doesn't say it, and it's implied later that it is. Mm-hmm. This is not looked at by Keoko as a good thing because of the problems between the nations. She appeals to everyone in the meeting there that things can remain with the U.S. and Japan controlling the Godzilla situation of their own. However, Akasaka overrules her, and he says Japan would agree to a 2-plus-2 two two arrangement. That means the two of them plus China and Russia.
0: Yeah, and her reaction to that is rolling her eyes.
1: Yeah, she rolls her eyes. He says, however, as army experts will remain as a backbone of the government, we have to respectfully decline your offer to remain at the center of decision making. What he means is that in this state of emergency that is still going on, the JSDF is controlling a lot more things than they usually do. And so it wouldn't be appropriate for the U.S. or other civilian government to have much input on it. So then Akasaka does that thing where he's like, but instead we will dot, dot, dot. And then it shows the scientific commission where it's just the U S and Japan. And so they confer experts. They have this interesting drone footage and they're trying to get a look at Godzilla up close and then it dies out. And they say it's because of the radar quote unquote, that Godzilla has. And I looked at that and I remember articles that I've been reading about the recon vehicles that the Fukushima management people are trying to use to try to get a good look at the reactors that are melting down. And the little vehicles keep dying because the radiation is so intense.
0: Oh, yeah, I bet.
1: Yeah, and so no matter how much heavy shielding you put on it, it still makes them inoperative. And so when I saw that, I thought, you don't suppose that has something to do with that?
0: Oh, it has to.
1: (laughs) This scene also makes me think about how an anti-nuclear protester collected sand from Fukushima and then attached it to a drone, and then the drone malfunctioned, and just like in this movie, <laughs> the drone malfunctions, and landed on the roof of the prime minister's residence and wasn't found for a couple of weeks.
0: <laughs> That's a really interesting story.
1: Which this incident occurred before, right before the movie was released, like mm-hmm. pretty soon. It was pretty close. And so when I saw about that, I thought, huh, I wonder if that drone has to do with this drone or if it was just a nice little coincidence. (laughs) Then we get a lot more plot about Godzilla's parts can reproduce asexually and then sprout wings and kill the human race (laughs) and nukes are necessary. And we have to the idea is that the scientists conclude that since this new information has been found, either Tokyo is screwed or the rest of Japan and the whole world is screwed.
0: I'm just freaking out by the concept of a winged Godzilla, especially this Godzilla. And the stuff that was growing. Yeah.
1: That was interesting.
0: Yeah. But that's our nice little foreshadowing for the end, I think. This part
1: of the movie is actually pretty long, Mm -hmm. where we have this big explanation and enhancement of the mood and atmosphere of the movie to this doom, impending doom over Tokyo.
0: Yeah.
1: And we get our Kyoko scene.
0: This was fascinating.
1: Yeah, and and the whole time we got a guy on a crane with the camera. The incredible part to me, which I haven't heard people say very much at all. The incredible part is that she starts saying the English word for Godzilla. And then she stops herself. And then she's like, "ea," no. And then she changes it to the Japanese pronunciation for Godzilla. And I can't help but think that there's something going on with that. Symbolically, and maybe this is where her her Japanese blood takes a more active role. This is where her character arc really hits a critical point. Mm-hmm.
0: Her tough American exterior cr- starts to crack here. Yes, she, she starts learns. To, yeah, she really starts to be affected by what's going on.
1: Yeah, and she learns that her country or her grandmother's country is going to be going through all of this, and she's purposely changed the way. Of saying Godzilla. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed this. In my opinion, it means that from this point on, she's going to start thinking more like she's from there. Mm -hmm. And she's empathizing with the Japanese much more.
0: In fact, one of the first things that she does is she tells Yaguchi that she was ordered to evacuate and she's not doing it. She's going to stay there to ride this out and do what she can to help. And it's unfortunate. I think a lot of people miss this because... This is one little point where I have to fault Funimation with their, with their subtitles, because that pause and correction is not communicated very well at all. No. It's funny when she says it's a US-UN joint operation,
1: is what we'll be doing the bombing of Tokyo, and then did you catch what Yaguchi said in response? He said, that means that the US is serious. <laughs> And that probably means that the U.S. does what it wants anyway. But if they're using the UN, then it merely means oh, serious. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Im- implication here. The report says that there's a 13% chance of Godzilla getting mm-hmm. to the U.S. Um, I would assume the Department of Defense would tell the president, "Forget Godzilla. We're pl- we're pulling the plug on him." Yeah, 13% is more than zero. Yeah, <laughs> so therefore we're doing this. It's all pretty realistic as far as what not just America, but the rest of the world would probably be demanding at this
2: point. Yeah,
0: it seems like a natural progression for the rest of the world to look at what's happening here and to assume Godzilla may eventually just leave Japan and go somewhere else.
1: Yeah, the movie isn't really trying to fool anybody about the reasons for the bombing. No. It's made crystal clear. It would scare the crap out of the domestic audience, though.
0: (laughs) They could scare the crap out of anybody, <laughs> really. Yeah, this,
1: this whole thing hanging over Tokyo like this.
0: Yeah, nobody really wants to have an atomic bomb dropped on them. It's just that it's more potent for the Japanese because they're the only country where that's happened in real life.
1: Yes, or, or the city that, you know, if you're in Tokyo watching it come out at the time, too. you're Obviously, that's going to mean a little bit more is because the city you're, that you're in right now. Yeah. The crane shot in this scene was a great idea. And she does, uh, Keoka does slip out of the frame a little bit towards the end, but I'm not really sure that was intentional or not. Anyway, they really drive the point home and they, and they show us the photo that's probably in the Hiroshima Museum, among yeah. other places. And then it shows the shrine that's been broken in half.
0: In the next scene, we see the new prime minister having a conversation with the president of the United States. And after he hangs up, he says, that country foists a lot of crazy things on us. And then a very upset official says
1: this is too far. Yeah. And so the UN would be in control of the country. And this is a huge threat to Japan's sovereignty. And then our out-of-touch prime minister says he didn't want to go down in history like this.
0: Yeah. And I, I have to tell you, every time I watch this movie, that scene gets to me.
1: But if I was Japanese and watching this, I'd be saying, who cares about your, who cares about your reputation and all this other stuff and your history? That's kind of sidestepping the issue here. And the real issue is Japan, you know, Tokyo getting bombed. It's Mm -hmm. not about you. Yeah. Do something to get out of
0: it. It's at this point that Prime Minister Satomi asks Akasaka to have a special law pass that would give the Prime Minister full powers. He needs this so he can authorize the nuclear drop. I assume it's because he's limited by the Constitution in the sorts of decisions that he can make. He can use this to bypass the diet and other obstacles. In other words, he can circumvent the bureaucracy.
1: And the representative government that's in place. hmm And some, not
0: making them vote on it. Yeah. It's a bit ironic in some ways, considering everything else that we've seen in this movie.
1: Then we get our rooftop scene, which I'm sure get, might get some American viewers a little upset. I feel like this conversation works way better... In a 311 context than it does in a Godzilla context. Akasaka says that post-war Japan is a tributary state. Yaguchi agrees and says post-war extends forever. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody calm down. They're just saying, when does this ever end? When will we get to be a normal country again? Akasaka states the truth that the bomb is the only way to actually make sure and essentially save the world. But then he rationalizes horribly by saying that, oh, well, other countries are giving us money to rebuild. So. Because mm-hmm. oh, he well. says
0: at this point, Japan needs the world's sympathy and funds.
1: That's kind of unbelievable that anyone would be saying that at a time like that. A bit. Akasaka even says that if Japan can't take care of Godzilla, then Japan loses the world's trust. That works way better in a 3.11 context, because why? If Japan completely screwed up Fukushima, way worse than th- that it ended up being, and had to evacuate Tokyo, they would lose the world's trust. Mm-hmm. That's quite a big connection there. Godzilla is a worldwide problem, but the domestic audience would be quite upset at what Akasaka is saying.
0: Yeah. For me, it was conformity disguised as wisdom because he's just acquiescing to what all of the other politicians are saying they need to do
1: and he's thinking ahead to when after Godzilla is gone Mm -hmm. he's also stuck on economics because he has to think about it if the economy of Japan collapses and then the country's dead that way anyway and Japan's real GDP went down 3.7% for the first quarter of 2011 international monetary forces had to step in ...to get the value of the yen back to normal after 311. So our hero says, scrap and build, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. And sacrifice Tokyo to rebuild everything when Godzilla's gone? Obviously this is tugging at patriotic sympathies. It has to be someone's job to care about that part, what happens after Godzilla. But they're caught between a rock and a hard place. In 311, the choice was to either abandon the nuclear power plant and let the whole thing just go and have to evacuate Tokyo, or to go in and freeze the ground around the nuclear plant, use the water to cool everything, and then not have to evacuate Tokyo and have the disaster be much smaller. In the very next scene, Yaguchi's team actually says that. The scientist says, either incinerate it with a nuke or freeze it with a drug. And so this is when our Fukushima 50 symbolism goes into overdrive. And what do they do? They choose the freezing option
0: hmm for me this uh, the statement on the surface sounds hopeful and empowering but really especially coming from akasaka it just sounds like a resignation like this is the only thing we can do yeah so we may as well just do it yoguchi just won't have any of it he knows there's a better route it's riskier but in the long run in his mind at the very least it will be the better option and the less destructive one Yaguchi does get the chance to pretty much say that Akasaka is a quitter, mm-hmm. and that he's
1: abandoning his country by giving in to the international community.
0: Mm-hmm. He pretty much gets to say what the I'm sure the audience has been thinking for most of this movie. And this scene, like,
1: it reminds me kind of of Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, where I said that they're playing around with the symbols a lot. Mm-hmm. This is really what they're doing here too. It's mm-hmm. kind of like Godzilla versus Ghidorah. They're really messing around with all of the zeitgeist pretty hardcore here
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and amidst uh, this meeting we have an interesting little line here from ogashira where she says man is more frightening than godzilla i think it's her little way of saying that human beings are choosing to employ the most destructive weapon in history on their fellow man because they refuse to consider any other alternative and she might also be saying that doing that will actually be more destructive than godzilla himself during the time that they're
1: trying to mobilize Plan B here, we're told, if you agree to buy them, Shanghai will give us three tank trucks. So that's China. Couldn't they, like, have donated them? It's just interesting that they could have just not had the whole if you agree to buy them part.
0: Yeah. Then
1: there's our scene with our partially sort of faceless Americans scene where they're looking out the window and it makes them look all shadowy and grim. And the ambassador says that the Japanese don't have enough time, but since it's dictated by when Godzilla becomes active again, the U.S. nor anybody else can change that. And it's also interesting that at one point they refer to our allies and then they mention Japan separately.
0: Hmm.
1: Not sure if there's anything co- there or not.
0: This was a stylistic point that Ano does intentionally. Anytime we see Americans in this movie, their faces are hidden or they're shadowy. You can't really see them. Yeah, there's always something going on with that mm-hmm. somehow. Other than Keoko, but Keoko looks Japanese. And this is done because he's trying to present the US as this distant power. That's making all of these decisions concerning the the safety and the fate of Japan, but they're far removed from everything. They're not there in the trenches. They're not there seeing everything firsthand.
1: Yeah, Kyoko is the only one doing that. Mm -hmm. In our next scene, we have a lot of guys that are complaining to Akasaka about the time frame and about all of this has to be done so quickly. And Akasaka lays down the reality to them. If it was New York City, they would do the same thing.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That statement actually reminded me of the movie Failsafe. Now, I haven't seen the original, but I saw the, the remake that was made for TV live about 10 years ago or so. And in that one, the president authorizes to have New York City nuked because a nuclear missile was accidentally launched onto Moscow. So he was doing a eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. He said, we're going to destroy one of our own cities to make this fair in order to prevent nuclear war. Yeah, I saw the original version and yeah. Same thing, essentially. Then we
1: have our big evacuation scene. The buses lining the entire highway. It's probably reminiscent of a lot of what the evacuations were.
0: It seems like this, that hammer at home, just how difficult it is to evacuate an entire city. But this is a trope that we've taken for granted in all of these previous movies. It also shows the
1: U.S. base at Yokosuka with a ship leaving. Then we get our second newspaper guy scene. Mm-hmm. And he talks about e- economy issues, and, and it's pretty much relating to after 311 when the yen went up and the G7 had to intervene to keep the currency from going too high and making problems with, in Japan worse. Then the value of the yen went back down. In this movie, they're talking about how there is a drop in the yen reflecting investor fears except those profiting from it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which that relates back to when the yen went way up and people were trying to profit off of that. So the newspaper makes a deal for info about Godzilla in order to give Yaguchi's team info about the professor that the government asked for. Then the newspaper guy says, print my article a day before the bomb drop, the article about Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Again, this is about the cozy relationship between the government and some in the media. Anyway, Hiromi says that the professor must have feared the military because of the goal he had of creating something that rendered radioactivity useless. So he hated radioactive material, and then also hated Japan, which left his wife to die. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is one reason why he committed suicide, possibly. He jumped into the middle of Tokyo Bay with the organism, and Godzilla, whether it's him or not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is his revenge against Japan. But later we get the thing about him being a test for the Japanese nation, as well as a test for mankind. Mm-hmm. The professor's creating this huge problem. And then he says, do as you like. So it's like a puzzle to solve. And the whole first act of the movie was people not solving the puzzle correctly.
0: Do you think it was his way of making Japan grow up in a sense and assert themselves more?
1: Yeah, we, we get that implication. Yeah.
0: Speaking of puzzles, <laughs> I really like the the scene where they figure out that in order to figure out Maki's formula, they have to fold it like it's origami. Which, you had an interesting parallel to go along with that.
1: Yeah, it sounded like Carl Sagan's Contact. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen that, the Jodie Foster Matthew McConaughey uh, movie. It's about folding paper, and that's essentially what origami is. And so that made me think of that. But it's still a good idea. And so the whole thing is what? He can convert atoms and all this in order to survive.
0: Mm -hmm. And then right after that, we get to hear... German in a Godzilla movie who would have thought yeah this is maybe
1: the only time Europe anything has been mentioned in a Godzilla movie ever and this is another indication that Japan has other allies than just the U.S. and that Japan can cooperate with them on their own so Japan showing its independence is also showing Japan's ability to work with other democracies That's what I took it as Mm -hmm. at an hour, 31 minutes and 33 seconds. That's where we're showing off practically at this point with our camera and and superimposing the CGI of the Godzilla cellular configuration Mm -hmm. on the screen. And at the same time, they're using it as a laptop, Mm -hmm. the laptop screen camera so it, it, they're doing that it was very very clever and ingenuity and or ingenious and i mm-hmm. think it works really well with the rest of the movie
0: it almost looks like something you would expect to see in the matrix people yeah. playing around with a with a laptop and they have code flowing yeah. around all over it
1: yeah the ones and zeros all mm-hmm. streaming down and then we get the whole plot you know extremophile etc 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 mm-hmm Then we have another rooftop scene. (laughs) Forgot how much this movie loves rooftops. And it's about how Japan cannot do as it likes with ease. And Patterson and Yaguchi pretty much come to a mutual conclusion and agree on that point. Perhaps this little scene was just to put Japan and the U.S. on a more equal footing regarding Japan's situation. So she's on her track to empathizing more with Japan. So we're filling in another piece of Kyoko's Character arc. Mm-hmm. Then they talk to the Prime Minister about doing the Yuguchi plan. Izumi tells the Prime Minister some say the U.S. seeks a quick resolution to bury their knowledge of Godzilla. This is the conflicting national security goals thing again
2: mm-hmm.
1: between the U.S. and Japan has been going on since the beginning. Izumi says that forcing one country's sacrifice for self gain is deplorable, meaning that the U.S. is deplorable for making Japan take the pipe just because they want to keep hiding this hidden research project.
0: It's a very understandable sentiment to to express at this point. <laughs> I don't blame them. Then it turns into Operation Yashiori, which is
1: named after the sake that Susanoo used to put a hydra to sleep.
0: Mm-hmm. The uh, the eight headed it had been brewed eight times.
1: So this is an act of defiance to the U.S., but it's also Japan going their own way. It's similar to the Return of Godzilla. With the nuke in that case, the meeting between the prime minister and the Soviet and U.S. representatives. As a result, it doesn't get me all that upset because it's not necessarily anything new. No. (laughs) Then our SDF uh, guy says, no need to thank us. It's our job. Mm -hmm. Which that's how the U.S. military works for Mm -hmm. all practical purposes. It's also quite the opposite to how the military was glorified during the Empire, too. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very big change from that.
0: Mm-hmm. Once again, a clear statement from the military where they're saying, we're doing our job.
1: During another meeting with our Fukushima 50, it's when they contact France and they get France to delay stuff with Security Council because they have veto power. Mm-hmm. And then Hiromi says, not China and Russia, too geopolitically close. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> like Politico speak for they'd probably say no.
0: Yeah. It's a polite way of saying, I don't think we can trust them. Next, we come to what I think is one of the most fascinating scenes in this entire movie, which is the airplane scene where Kyoko is talking with a U.S. official named Cusley. I don't know which time that I watched this film that I noticed this,
1: but I've seen this movie a lot. But that's the same guy who played Rosenberg in the 1984 movie.
0: The, uh, the U.S. diplomat? Yes. The ambassador? Yes. I have to agree with you. It has to be the same guy. I'm
1: banking on that. Yeah, it's got to be. And that's a nice callback to the 1984 movie, too. Yeah, because he's sort of this guy's sort of like the ultimate American diplomat that she talks to.
0: Yeah, but we have no way of knowing from the film, because like all the other Americans in this, we don't get to see his face.
1: No, and there's nothing on any of the websites either about this. I just know it's him. So the U.S. decides to stay quiet because of this whole hiding the research project. And like I said, Russia and China are opposed to in Japan another day. Then she says it isn't just hardliners at Washington and the Pentagon. Cusley says that he's been trying to advise Charles against it. The president. Meaning, yeah, the president. He isn't a hardliner. Cusley isn't. And he says that nuclear weapons should just be used as a deterrent. Either way she thinks about her career versus helping Japan. If she goes with helping Japan and it doesn't go well, then of course it would hurt her career. And as he says, mud will stick.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And her dream of becoming president will disappear. She decides to bring in the U.S. to help with our plan B operation.
0: It's at this point where I think her story arc really comes full circle. This is when she makes the choice then and there. I am... Going to risk everything for the sake of my grandmother's country, because she's taking a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big
1: deal. The next little part, she's talking to Yaguchi, and she says that there are Marine and other U.S. forces volunteering, and they have drones too. Then she, we get this wonderful joke where she says, "If anything's broken, she'll build the build Japanese government later." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm guessing that's a connection to how Japan has to pay the U.S. for defending their country yeah <laughs> yeah before yaguchi's pep talk with the rest of the fukushima 50 and company izumi tells him that he shouldn't be at the command post because it's too unsafe and this is just a little part of the movie that that, that happens this isn't a big part but yaguchi is brave and he insists that he'll go because he might be needed and he has to help save the country this is a parallel To Masao Yoshida, the plant manager at the Fukushima plant, who stayed to help the rest of the workers that remained at the plant, risking their lives to save others. That's got to be what this is. And if so, it's quite amazing once you realize what's going on, when you know that that's the
0: context. Mm -hmm. And this leads us into Yoguchi's big patriotic pep talk. He says that they are the last line of defense for this country.
1: We place the future of the country in your hands.
0: Mm -hmm. The JSDF is the last fortress.
1: And he's a civilian directing Mm them, you know, giving this speech. Again, this is a lot about 311 and the Fukushima 50. He's telling them that they're going into dangerous, radiated areas and that their safety isn't guaranteed. Well, that is pretty obvious, that connection to Fukushima, because Japan's future was in the hands of the Fukushima 50. I'm also guessing that the uniforms being used in this scene are a salute to the Fukushima 50 as well because they had to wear uniforms like this. There's a strong connection between Yaguchi and Masao Yoshida, the manager of the plant. He's looked at as a hero because he defied orders from TEPCO, the utility, to stop using seawater to cool the reactors during the crisis. If he had obeyed those orders... The meltdowns would have been worse. More radioactive particles would have been released. And it's just like they're defying what? The international community's order of the bombing Mm -hmm. because they're trying to go around that. And so there's a big, huge connection here. And he decided to be a
0: leader during a time of deep urgency. To me, that is what the scene is about. And there's another real world parallel with this recently japan activated its first marine unit about 2100 troops in what they called the amphibious rapid deployment brigade and this was the first time since world war ii that they had done something like this and they were doing it in order to counter china's infringement on japanese islands i even read that vice defense minister tomohiro yamamoto came to a base at sasebo and gave a speech that i'm sure was not unlike this scene in the movie And in that speech, he said, Given the increasingly difficult defense and security situations surrounding Japan, defense of our islands has become a critical mandate. It's the latest effort Japan has made to expand its marine forces to create something like the U.S.'s Marine Expeditionary Units. And with China outpacing Japan 3-1 to on defense spending, it's desperately needed.
1: Then starting at 140-25, we get our attack on
0: Godzilla, which is fantastic. The big climax, which starts by playing some more Bay music. This time, it's a track from Battle on Outer Space. It's during the day, and the idea with the bullet trains with the explosives on them
1: was fantastic. I really love it. The units that carry out Operation Yashiori, they have a little insignia, and it's from the art From the 1960s anime, The Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon. It's hard to see it, but you have to pause it. You'll see it on the doors of the vehicles. We saw that at around 1.44.30 would be the timestamp. Then the Air Force uses drones to divert attention and to make Godzilla use up energy. And so there's all all these explosions in the air and all of the lasers coming out of his back. All these beams. And the idea is what? You're, You're trying to put the Fukushima reactor, to sleep, mm-hmm. essentially. Getting to the tail, I love the idea with shooting the beam out of his tail.
0: <laughs> Seems like a, a natural progression. If he can already shoot lasers out of his back, may as well shoot it out of his tail now, too.
1: And the whole idea here, again, is that is doing stuff that's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. It's the situation that's changing as you're going, and you have to react to it as it, as it changes. Mm-hmm. That's the whole idea.
0: Here. He's constantly evolving to deal with whatever new opposition or threat he's coming up against. And then we have what has to be the most realistic looking collapsing buildings in any Japanese Godzilla movie. It's really meticulously done. It looks nice. Yeah, and I love the the nice little touches that we see throughout this climax where they're using the old Showa era sound effects to mm-hmm. go along with the with the Afuka Bay music. It's great.
1: De- they're destroying the buildings so that they'll fall on him. That's great. And then uh, the use of the missiles even to take out some buildings because we're using uh, cruise missiles specifically from uh, U.S. positions. It's funny that the diehard Godzilla smash everything fans might like the destruction and the action in this. But in fact, it's all this destruction and action is hampering Godzilla. <laughs> and so it's like the, the opposite usually of what's happening here is instead of Godzilla causing the destruction is that we're causing destruction to hinder him. So it's. Kind of a play on that. But again, this is a different kind of movie. And so you're going to get this kind of a twist on it.
0: It's kind of the opposite of Godzilla 98, where the military is accidentally causing destruction to the city, trying Mm -hmm. to kill Godzilla, where in this one, they're doing it intentionally to hamper him.
1: (laughs) Now this brings us to the compression pumps. And this is a direct connection to 311 because those pumps were used to throw water on the reactors that were in meltdown. And notice how close they have to be when they're administering This coagulant to Godzilla is definitely similar to how the Fukushima 50 had to be so close to the harmful radiation at the plant. They have to have to be right there risking their lives right next to him.
0: And once again, we have another connection to the Yashiori myth because these trucks are called Hydra Slayer 1. Yeah, it's a nice connection. (laughs) I love it. Then Godzilla actually kills quite a few of them.
1: And then this is demonstrating the risk that they're taking. Mm hmm. And then they send in our
0: not-so-bullet trains. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the ab- the <laughs> well, sort of average train trains. Yeah.
0: Yep, another train attack. All of these trains feel like little callbacks to the original movie. You know, that scene when Godzilla comes ashore the first time. Yeah. And the train, he, you know, he intercepts a train and picks one of them up. It's also kind of like the, the Blue Oyster Cult song. <laughs> he mm-hmm. picks up a bus and, it th- and throws it back down.
1: <laughs> and then notice they're monitoring the radiation plume that is blowing out east of the city while this is going on. And I can't help but think that was due to the radiation and evacuation zone map that many of the Japanese were used to seeing. Zones that you can not go and zones that you can. Devastatingly, the winds were blowing the wrong way on 311 and was blowing actually into the country.
0: And the other computer readout that they have that shows all the percentages, that's another Anno Easter egg. That's the same computer readout that was used in Evangelion
1: the operation succeeds
0: just like the fukushima 50 succeeded but interestingly there isn't a huge celebration immediately after godzilla is defeated i heard another podcast say that this might have been because of cultural differences but i don't think that's the issue here we've seen japanese characters exuberantly celebrate when they defeat a kaiju like in godzilla versus megagiris no i think it's because this isn't a surefire victory. This is a long-standing problem. Godzilla could wake up. He's not dead.
1: And just like 311 is a long-standing problem. It'll take decades to fix. Yeah, it's, it's relating to that. At an hour and 49 minutes and 21 seconds in, we have this little part where the prime minister and his staff, including what looks like Akasaka, are bowing to the French ambassador to Japan. And the prime minister is bowing particularly low. Yes. And this stuff about Japan working with other countries, it can be looked at in two ways. Either it's showing that the international community has confidence in Japan as it is now, or that Japan is willing to go to countries it knows are friends, and that they're showing their willingness shows Japan is not as insular as it has been before or used to be. The Japanese PM bowing, though, is quite moving. It's honorable, and they didn't have to have that part in the movie, necessarily. The idea that this movie is really nationalistic, this kind of really plays against
0: that. Yeah. It's because what?
1: Another country saved them.
0: Yeah, because this is a very explicit expression of gratitude.
1: Yes, and therefore, you have to recognize that.
0: And the fact that it's the prime minister, the leader of the country, bowing to this ambassador, That is a huge deal.
1: Yeah. And so they're giving thanks.
0: Yeah. As moving as that is, do you think it might've also been played a little bit for laughs? Because I remember both the times I saw it in the movie theater here and in G-Fest, it got a little bit of a chuckle.
1: Maybe the way it's put together, the way that it's edited, because it is kind of sudden and then it comes back to normal. Yeah. So I don't know. It probably might be the reason.
0: And then we come to this little scene where Yoguchi's rebels are talking about the the radioactive isotopes that Godzilla is leaving.
1: Yes, yeah, the half-life. And they realize they really lucked out on this having a really low half-life and that Japan will be okay.
0: Yeah, and the to- those parts of Tokyo, people will be able to return to them. I think they said in about two years is what they were estimating. It's the first and only time that Ogashira smiles.
1: Kind of like... In GMK, do you remember that? With the woman at the end? Oh, yes. And she's extremely elated. Mm-hmm. That was, that's what it reminded me of. It's obviously way better to have two years than 2052 as the end, which is Fukushima. That's the the year that I keep seeing bandied about is when 20, it's 2052. So this is kind of a bit of a wish fulfillment maybe on the movie's yeah. part. But specifically, Hiromi says this is good news for Tokyo residents. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a direct 311 thing if I ever heard it. Yeah. It -hmm. was good news for Tokyo residents that what? That the Fukushima 50 prevailed Mm -hmm. and saved them from what would have been a much larger disaster, which they would have had to evacuate Tokyo for. After that, there's a small little part where it shows the armed forces decontaminating vehicles. And that reminds me when I read about the USS Ronald Reagan being exposed to radiated particles and then having to be scrubbed. And also of the U.S. service members who got exposed to it and got cancer. Then we have Yaguchi and Akasaka, and they're talking about the future and about the cabinet. The takeaway that I got is that the two of them are going to cooperate more in the future about fixing everything.
0: And during this conversation, Akasaka says, this country rose through scrap and build. It'll do so again. So it's going back to their earlier conversation on the rooftop, but he's recontextualizing everything. And now he's saying that it won't be because another nuclear bomb was dropped on them. It's that they're rebuilding from Godzilla, which hopefully won't be nearly as bad. So now it's genuinely hopeful as opposed to just sounding like a resignation. We talk
1: quite a bit in these episodes of the podcast about our victim scenes. Whenever mm-hmm. we have our victim scenes, cause it's really important. And in, in this, we have a reverse victim scene
0: because mm-hmm, we're seeing
1: refugees. Yeah. And they're happy. Mm-hmm. It's a real reversal from the hospital scenes in the first Godzilla movie, which mm-hmm. was just horrific. Yeah. we we're, seeing... we're ending on a higher note. Mm-hmm.
0: We're seeing little kids running around and playing. And this is one of the
1: first Godzilla films that ended on this high of a note. Too. Yeah. Like as far as just average people, mm-hmm. it really uh, is very positive about it. Finally, there's our last rooftop conversation between Kayoko and Noguchi, and that's where we get the whole thing about we must learn to live with Godzilla. And there are a number of ways to interpret this. Some have said that it means humans should coexist with each other, and that that's what that means. And some people saw an, any various other messages. While others said that it's nuclear power that -hmm. they have to live with. And that's the message. In my opinion, they may be referring to Godzilla as all disasters, Mm -hmm. like 311 earthquakes and all this stuff that the Japanese have had to live with for a long time. It might also be about how we have to learn to live with mistakes and the mistakes that humans make. But that's just my guess here. And that's why the countdown has been suspended. But there's always something else down the road.
0: Yeah. Godzilla just has to wake up and then the countdown will start up again. And if that happens, they're only going to have an hour.
1: We have our final bit of our satire of the Alliance in this part, too, because she said, you shared the data with France. And he says, and the whole world. And I regret nothing. Yep. (laughs) This conversation should be taken just as that, though. It's a satire of the Alliance. It's like listening to an older and a younger sibling talking to each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She admires that Japan wants to be more like America, though, Mm -hmm. and make decisions on its own. And like Cusley said in the airplane, crisis is a time for
0: growth. Keoka makes a little comment about how Yoguchi could be her Japanese counterpart when she becomes president. And to which he replies, you're your Japanese puppet, you mean. (laughs) This
1: arc of the interaction between the two of them has matured in a huge way this relationship. They're no longer at odds with each other and the standoffishness is done Mm -hmm. and there isn't so much of a dominant, subservient relationship. No, they're friends now. Yeah, it's turned into more of a versatile kind of arrangement. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: The whole scene is just playing around with the perceived attitudes of their respective countries. I
1: really like Yaguchi standing there next to Godzilla behind him in the Tokyo skyline, and he actually looks at the camera. Mm-hmm. I really love that shot. That looks so good.
0: And it's appropriate that the, the final line in this movie is him saying to Godzilla, this isn't finished yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now on to the the tail and all this. The oft-debated tail. <laughs> well, the the given thing here is that Godzilla turns into stuff that is attacking it. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting from this is that he would break apart into all of these little creatures mm-hmm. and then they would multiply and then kill off humanity because they are all these little monsters, essentially.
0: Yeah. these
1: Not normal.
0: Yeah, these bizarre, monstrous, humanoid figures. They almost look like half-formed xenomorphs.
1: <laughs> and so they're the weapon to attack humanity with. He's responding to enemies trying to kill him by turning into something that would be the best tool to kill them with.
0: Mm-hmm. I tend to lead toward this being Godzilla reproducing asexually, because that was something established earlier in the movie. Or, as you said, evolving into a more humanoid creature.
1: But everybody's said a whole bunch of different things about what this could be and what it couldn't. I mean, it's yeah, it's there... also been said that this is, this is what it looks like when radiations mess around with humans. Mm-hmm. I've also kind of heard
0: it interpreted as a a symbol of conformity. I mean, there are as many theories about this as there are Godzilla fans. But interestingly, Higuchi was asked by somebody at GFest last year, what this really meant. And his response was the only person who knows is Ano, and he's not telling anybody. (laughs) And now Brian, give us those economic figures.
1: In 2016, the Japanese economy grew 1.0%. Not all that. Wonderful. At least it's not down. Yeah. Um, this was also the year that the Kumamoto earthquakes occurred, mm-hmm. which were quite disastrous. Given how much stuff there is in this movie to talk about and how many things there is to, or are to address, uh, pr- we probably missed something.
2: <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah.
1: But uh, don't hold us to that. We, we aren't trying to be totally comprehensive with everything. We're just giving you our opinion as Americans about
0: what we see in this movie. Yeah. We did it, Brian. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, listeners. We hope you really enjoyed this episode. Yes, we're now caught
1: up on our Godzilla journey to the present. Uh, We will be taking a hiatus for a break after this for a little while.
0: Yeah, we need a rest after all this work.
1: (laughs) However, there are plenty of Godzilla films that will be released still yet, and we will be covering those all through 2020 with Godzilla vs. Kong. We will be doing other movies and content. Uh, We haven't decided on what exactly we're going to do, but we will uh, let you know as soon as we
0: do. The next Godzilla movie that we will be covering will be the anime trilogy that's being released right now. But we're going to wait until all three of them are out. So that way we can have a more complete picture of what's going on with them. Uh, It's kind of odd to just start
1: with Monster Planet and not know exactly where the story is going at all.
0: Yeah, because Monster Planet was definitely not a standalone.
1: Yeah, so we're going to wait and then get get our whole picture of a uh, how to look at these movies, which uh we will uh, be enjoying because uh, we pretty well liked Monster Planet. Mhm. We will be at G Fest this year, and that will be in July, from July 13th through the 15th in Rosemont, Illinois at the Chicago O'Hare Crown Plaza Hotel. The guests at G-Fest will be Akira Takarada, the, of course, the actor, Megumi Odaka, the actress, and Keizo Murase, who is a suit and model maker. So to have a nice lineup of guests for the event, and that should be exciting.
0: And an exciting thing for us is we will be hosting our first ever panel. It will be entitled Godzilla and the Japanese National Spirit. We'll also be part of a few other panels throughout the weekend. So
1: please come join us. We would especially like to thank our Patreon donors who have been with us during our Godzilla journey and donating. We really could not have done it without you. It is so wonderful that we have your support, and it's invaluable. If you've really liked the content that we've released during this marathon weekly podcast, which has now gone almost 40 weeks straight, every single Wednesday... Uh, we put a lot of work into it, and we really put a lot of heart into it, too. And if you like what you've been listening to, uh, you please uh, start donating to us on Patreon. We will be giving you uh, a, a special content that not everybody else will be able to see. And it's it'll be very interesting to, uh, to be with us along in this journey as we cr- uh, start deciding on what content to create next. We want to dedicate this episode... To the victims of the 311 disaster, plant manager Masao Yoshida, the Fukushima 50, the U.S. service members who participated in Operation Tomodachi, U.S. Forces Japan, and the JSDF.
0: Our hearts go out to the victims, and we are incredibly grateful for all of the work that these amazing heroes did in response to this unprecedented disaster.
1: We'd like to send a shout out to our patrons, Kyohei Toshi and Sean Stiff for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it.
0: If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our
1: podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon.
0: I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster.
1: And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara!